This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show tier one navy seal and the man behind 30 seconds out sean evangelista now in this conversation we discuss a host of topics from his traumatic early life going through the scared straight program finding climbing his journey into the navy his unique perspective on war transition mountaineering ski patrol and so much more Now, before we get to this incredibly powerful and important conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of over 830 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Sean Evangelista. Enjoy. Well, Sean, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast. I know we chatted quite a while ago. This was the perfect window for us to finally uh, have this conversation. So welcome to the show. Yeah, 100%. I'm stoked to be here, man. Thanks for inviting me on. I think it'll be a good conversation for sure. Absolutely. Well, I did watch your short film, um, The Dark Edge, and seeing that and the vulnerability of someone who operated at the tier one level in the military I think this is going to be a, a very important, needed conversation. You know that, that parallels a lot that've been on here already. 
So as we sit here now, where on planet Earth are we finding you? I'm in Montrose, Colorado right now. It's like the western slope. If you picture Colorado with square, the Rocky Mountains going right down the middle, we're on the western side of that. Like the current uncrowded side of Colorado, which is pretty sweet. Brilliant. Well, I would love to start at the very beginning of your story and we'll get to why you're in Colorado. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, how many siblings. Yeah, sure. So I was born in downtown San Francisco in 1974. um, And my mom and dad um, had me. They didn't have any other kids. Uh, A couple of years after I was born, um, my dad basically just walked out on us. He was pretty heavily you know, involved with drugs and alcohol and kind of bouncing from job to job and making lots of promises. And eventually one day he just walked out and just literally just left. And then that left my mom and I in a a pretty tough spot. We ended up um, losing the place we were living in because he left because he was the other source of income, you know, hit or miss when he was working, you know, when he wasn't out partying or doing whatever he was doing. And we ended up homeless for a few months where she was just, you know, asking friends if we could just, hey, can we can we crash in the living room for a little bit? And um, this was around when I was, you know, three, four years old. And so I don't I don't really have a memory of, of this time period of, you know, being homeless with my mom. And when I say homeless, we weren't like pushing a shopping cart and like living in shelters. And she thought about going to shelters, but she didn't want to because of the the, the dangers there and. Um, and she had, I think, just enough friends that would, you know, could help us out. And so we started doing that in San Francisco. And, you know, she was, my mom grew up with music. That's how she's made her living. I mean, all the way up until this day is she's a classical pianist and an opera singer. And uh, she was a soprano and so um, classically trained. And so she got an um this opportunity to audition for the Jim Neighbors show. If someone like the listeners remember Gomer Pyle, right? Jim Neighbors, he's also, um, you know, he's a pretty good singer and musician. And he had this show at the Hilton Hawaiian Village in Waikiki. And so my mom's friend, I think, nudged her, kept pushing her to go try out. And so my mom tried out and it was, the tryout was for a two week gig to sing with Jim Neighbors, which would like kind of get you in the spotlight a little bit. Like people like Carol Burnett were going there and, um, and so my mom just thought it was such a long shot, but like a lot of things in life, we think these long shots are like, we're not worthy of that. We shouldn't do it. But my mom said, okay, with a nudging of a friend, I'll go do it and I'll come back and I won't make it. And then, I'll, and then you can shut up. Well, she goes, not only does he, she make it, he has such good chemistry with her. He says, you know what? I, he says, I've been kind of thinking about bringing on a second on my show. Would you like to join me permanently? So we're going from like literally couch surfing, like with nothing. And we're, we're just like, we're struggling immensely to now she's got a job singing with Jim neighbors in the Waikiki. So we moved to Hawaii, me and my mom. And then like, you know, the, it was, it was awesome. Like for, I don't remember the moving that part, but this is, I remember the stories of years, her telling me like what a relief it was to have that after going through you know things with my dad. And um, we thought we, everything was going to be on the up and up from there, but like life, life treats all of us. I don't care how much money you have, where you come from. It's a cycle. There's always cycles. There's always ups and there's always downs. And every up doesn't last and every down doesn't last, even though we want the ups to last forever, you know? And so she got the job, started working, you started making money. And we're like, okay, sweet. Now we can get our own place. That was awesome. And then she, she meets a guy, a, a local there in Hawaii and, you know, was whining and dining her, like in love with her because she was a musician and, and so they end up getting married and 
it, it turned out that it was a, he was a complete sociopath. Like he was a seriously, a physically and mentally abusive person. Like, so they got married and we moved in um, with, with Ray and he, it was Jekyll and Hyde. The person he was before they got married, was a completely different person than after they got married. Right. And this is when my, I started to, rem- this is the, where my memory starts to enter and where I start remembering things. Like I remember these years when she, we were with Ray and I think, you know, at this point, a couple of years had gone by, she's working, she married Ray. I'm like seven years old ish, right around there. And he starts immediately um, getting super jealous. I think he was probably extremely insecure and he starts beating her. Like, I mean, very violently beating her. Like it was bad. And, you know, he would rape her, beat the shit out of her. And I, w- I remember just sitting in my bedroom, listening to this happening. Like what, what the hell is happening? Like, why is this going on? You know, like, it was, I didn't know, what do you think when you're seven? Do you just, you don't have a lot of uh, examples in the world other than what's currently happening to you. So I guess, you know, I'm like, well, uh, maybe this is just what life is like. It's just terrible. And that went on for about six months. They were married together. They, they were together for six months. And the day we left was a was the, the craziest day out of the entire six month block that we were with this guy. So he started beating the shit out of my mom and they got a huge fight. He grabs me, throws me up on the table. And this is in the film. I talk about this in the film. Throws me on the table. And then like, like he had read the Bible or something. Like he knows about like, you know, you know, the, one of the, one of the patriarchs in the Bible throws his son up on the table and like, oh, well, we'll cut him in half. So he does that. He goes like, well, if you want to, if you're going to leave, then we're going to split everything in half. Picks me up, puts me on the table, pulls a knife out and like, we'll, we'll cut him in half too. You take half, I'll take half. And he's holding me down on the table with this knife. And like, it, like, I remember this, this is like, I don't remember feeling anything other than pure like darkness and terror. That's all I remember feeling. I didn't, I couldn't do anything. He was a strong dude. And my mom, she just real calmly just uh, says, Ray, put the knife down. She gets me, grabs her purse and we go out and we get in her vehicle and literally drive away with what we were wearing. Like there was no packing of a suitcase. And then he started following us and, um, and then we're like, okay, well, at least we're away from him. Then my mom met some other friends there in the community that like really like helped us out, put us up in their place. And then we ended up, she, we, she ended up renting her own spot. And then things started to stabilize. A couple years later, um, she met um, Paul, who was a sergeant major in the 25th ID, the infantry division. And they started dating and he was awesome, super stable. And then that gave me something like look up to, because I was like, okay, this dude at first, you know, I was a little, obviously a little, you know, level in trepidation like i don't know who this person is so you start to develop these walls right well, it turns out he was an awesome person he still he he died a couple of years ago but he's a he's a great man and he became like the first role model in my life really and that's what the connection with him being in the army and he, he was in vietnam he was in the lerps and he didn't tell me a lot of stories and he never encouraged me to go in the military but he would he would answer my questions and so i would go to the base with him every once in a while i get to see what he did at the base and stuff and i was like that all started to represent to me like security, doing the right thing, being a good person, having a team, like having people around you that support you and you can support them. And I'm like, this is it. Like, this is, this is amazing. And so then I started thinking about the military thing and, you know, years went by and um, we ended up moving um, 
back to the U.S. back to back to San Fran. He got stationed at the Presidio. A lot, you know. So some people remember the, the Presidio is still there in San Francisco, but now I think it's a national park. At the time, it was a, it was an army base, and we went there and then went went to you know went up through high school, went to high school in Maryland. We ended up moving Georgia then Maryland, and um, in high school, um, there was a bunch of stuff I just skipped over in my life, right? Like a bunch of stuff that happened to me. Like I was in the Boy Scouts and like ran in, like our assistant scoutmaster was a, was a complete pedophile. And so me and a buddy got wrapped up with that dude for, um, you know, he was a better part of more, probably two years or something, year and a half-ish sort of time frame where he was like kind of abusing us. And um, in a nutshell, the first time it happened, we went to his, trailer of course it's in a trailer park right like some seedy fucking trailer park and but we'll look up to his assistant scoutmaster i'm like he's 13 years old or whatever and we get in there he starts feeding us jack and cokes he puts porno on the tv and then he starts taking us back in the back room and trying to have his way with us and um does yeah so we ran into that and so that was like another incident um that not incident it was a it was a time period where we were getting abused by this guy and like it started to add on to like the mental um i was putting up mental like fortifications i would say where i became i came to the point where i didn't trust anybody and i would and i was started to get really violent like i was you know your super defenses so i was everything that I, that a cornered dog would do like that was me i was a human being that was a cornered dog right so everything i, I see i started to see as a threat um and then, you know, we left, that was in Georgia. And then we, we left, got into high school. And, and at that point, you know, there's, there'd been a bunch of other stuff I hadn't covered. We'll, we'd be talking for hours, but it was pretty, pretty, uh, I would say I was, I was isolating, you know, when I got to high school, um, I wanted to fit into a team environment and, um, I tried out for, uh, I wanted to try out for, for high school, for high school football. But I had missed I had missed the cutoffs when I got to high school. And they're like, oh, I talked to the coach, like, you just missed, you know, you missed August, you know, two a days. And he's like, you can try out again next year. So I was like, okay, well, shit, I missed that. Well, um, so then I joined this uh this search and rescue group. And it was an ESARS. It was a, it was like a, like a branch of the Boy Scouts, the Explorer, the Explorers. So um it was the Explorer Search and Rescue. And that was where I got my first real taste of um outdoors. There were two guys in there. And they were climbers. They were rock climbers. And I had heard of rock climbing. And this was my freshman year. And I started meeting these guys. And, like, everyone in the search and rescue group, like, respected them because they had, like, been to Alaska. Like, they went to a Knowles course in Alaska. And I was like, these dudes went to Alaska and climbed. Like, holy shit. That's amazing. And so um, I started to, like, look up to these guys. I'm like, yeah, we, they're like, you want to climb? I'm like, definitely, yes. When are we going? Let's go climb. So they went. we went to, like, Patapsco State Park, I think, in, in uh, Maryland or Virginia. I can't remember which part that is, but we set up a top rope. We started doing it. And, and then I was in search and rescue and I was like, this is awesome. I'm going to do this. And met a really good a mentor within that search and rescue group, uh, the complete opposite, even though it's associated with the boy Scouts, it was the, the, the complete antithesis of the experience I had in my younger days in the Scouts. And Pete McCabe was his name. He's, he passed away, but he ran that, that explorer search and rescue group. And he made us fucking tough. I'm talking we would go and climb in the White Mountains in New Hampshire in February. So New Hampshire, the White Mountains in New Hampshire, if you ask people that know about mountains, they know about the White Mountains in New Hampshire. They're not the big, you know, 14ers we have in Colorado and all that. But at one point, 
for a long, for decades, they had the highest recorded wind speed on earth on the summit of Mount Washington. And so Pete was like, I'm going to take these kids up here. We're going to get tough. And so we first year we go up, we climb Mount Madison in the wintertime. And we're wearing these big Mickey Mouse boots that you would see in like a World War II black and white films. And we're like trying to, we're like strapping crampons onto these. They're basically like, they're balloons on your feet with thick rubber. That's what they are. And so we would go back every year. We do winter training up there. We, we're not sleeping in hotels. We're sleeping on fr a frozen river that's like popping and cracking all night intense and you wake up and it's 30 below zero 40 below zero 20 below zero in the morning so you get up and like everything's frozen right and and the equipment back then we're talking 1988 89 was not like it is today and so we really got tough doing that we went up there every year and and um and so a buddy of mine we wanted to become climbers and mountaineers and we started reading like rock and ice magazine and and climbing became in high school my thing like that is what like it, 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 like I just let it engulf me. Like I just went down that road and I was so happy on it. At the same time, I was also reading a lot of books about like special forces and stuff like that. And so going, going through like high school, my, we were so inspired working with these other friends. My friends and I started making personal trips up to the White Mountains to try to climb. We wanted to get Mount Washington in the wintertime. And the fifth trip that we had all made to the White Mountains, we made it. And it, three other attempts we got blown off um got lost in a whiteout still to this day the most scared i've ever been in the mountains was on mount washington on a winter attempt we got into a whiteout we, and you could hold you could put your arm out and touch the person in front of you and the winds were blowing we were you know we were above tree line there um when we turned back all these times and one time that one time we got in the whiteout it was um it was kind of terrifying we no gps back then right we're just looking for cars the rock stacks well I can only see to the tips of my fingers pretty much. So we just start heading down and we had heard stories about like, there's a climber named Hugh Herr. He had, he had similar thing had happened to him. We were, we were taking the lion's head trail up that, that splits two ravines. There's Huntington's and Tuckerman's. You don't want to go into either during a whiteout. Tuckerman's is super steep. Um, Huntington's um, goes into a, like a huge forest with no civilization. And that's where Hugh Herr went and got lost for a couple of days and ended up losing his legs below the knee. And that story was in my head while we were in this whiteout, right? And we're the whiteout, that whiteout year was uh, uh, 11th grade in high school. So we got down, we went up the next year and we made it. At the end of high school, um, I'll back up a little bit. In high school, I kind of barely graduated. I was like, I didn't care about going to class and I wasn't, I wasn't stupid at all. I was, a, I was a pretty intelligent kid. I just didn't care about it. And I also had a big problem with authority, which is odd that I went into the military, but special operations is a little different. So um, it, it was, it was a tough, it was tough enough to where my guidance counselor, he got me into that. Um, you remember that scared straight program where they would take school kids they would take him to a prison. The prisoners, you know, intimidate him and be like, you know, I was in your shoes. If you keep doing what you're doing, you're going to end up right here. And what, well, we went and did that on a Saturday. We went to Jessup State Penitentiary in Maryland and we went right in there and it's a maximum security prison. And we were all pretty like, ah, it's going to be a good time we're on the bus. And on the bus, it was all the, the troublemakers at school. There was like 20, 25 of us on this bus. And it was like, oh, you're all the kids I know from detention getting suspended and like, we're always seeing you in the office, right? We were like the shitheads of the school, 100%. And so I was like, that was the first like reality check where I was like, oh, I'm in this 
this group. Like, I, like they see me like as the person I'm, I'm with these people. I'm one of these 20, 25 that are basically the kind of the worst of the kids in high school. They just, they just haven't been expelled yet. Um, so we go in there and we were bold until all the doors started shutting behind us. Kadoosh, kadoosh, kadoosh. This, all these signals and official like, you know, beeps and you know, guys talking on walkie talkies. And we're just sitting there just in our jeans and a t-shirt and it got real. When we got in there, they didn't yell at us. We sat down at these, they were like picnic tables um, in, in this big block. And uh, these guys that came out that had been in there for decades and decades. And they basically described us without even us even talking. They're like, let me guess you guys are doing this, this, and this you're, you're breaking into things. You're, you're doing small thievery stuff. Cause you think it's fun. He's like, yeah, I was doing that too. And then pretty soon I was stealing cars. And then they, they basically just described our lives up until getting to their point, sitting there in a maximum security prison talking to us. And it was like, Holy shit. These guys know exactly what, who we are, like and what we're doing. And that was a sobering thing to me. So after that, I was like, I, I, I need to at least put some thought and effort into maybe cleaning my, my thought process up and, get some goals like for real and figure out what I'm going to do when I leave high school. For me, college was never, um, it was never on my plate. I just didn't want to go. And I, I, my philosophy was later on in life, college will make sense to me probably. But right now the way I am and the way things are going, I have, I have no interest in doing it. And it would have been a total waste of my money or anyone's money that sent me to college. And so I had a decision to make senior year. I was either going to move to Jackson hole, Wyoming, and it was Jackson hole because that's in the magazines. They had a lot of public, they had a lot of like photography and stuff out of Jackson Hole. And that's where like, like 1992, 91, that's where all the extreme skiing was happening. Like Jackson was like the hub of us extreme skiing and mountain things. And I'm like, I got to go to Jackson or I'm going to go try to become a seal. And I still didn't know on graduation day of high school, I still didn't know which way I was going to go. And I was right there at the doorstep. It's like, Hey dude, it's time to make a decision here. And so um, that, I graduated high school. The next morning at 06, I flew to Alaska to go to a Knowles course, the National Outdoor Leadership School. That's my parents sent me there uh, because I wanted to go to Alaska. So they signed me up for this. It's a 30-day Alaska mountaineering course. Two weeks into that course, um, I was just sitting on the Chugach Glacier. We're up there in the Chugach Mountain Range, um, kind of south of the Alaska Range where, where Denali is, where most people know where Denali is. We were south of that. And so... It just, it just basically became super clear to me. I'm like, no, I want to go. I'm going to go try to make it into the SEAL teams. I'm going to go for it. And my mindset was not, I'm going to go and I'm going to make it because I'm me and I'm badass. I, I never had that mentality. I My mindset was, I'm just going to go and I'm going to give it everything I got. Now, why, why Navy SEALs are not PJs or some other group that maybe does a lot more mountain stuff? Yeah, it, it was... It was the books of the books that were written about the seals in Vietnam, like in the Mekong Delta, that I really started getting into that. And there was the thing that attracted me was the guys in the book, like the things they would do were were like crazy. The the missions they would do would do were like super dicey, very crazy. It was pretty much all offensive operations. They weren't like training other armies really to fight. They would just go set ambushes in the Mekong Delta and just you know fight VC and NBA. And that attracted me. And then how the, the, the BUDS course was perceived. I perceived it as being like one of the most difficult military selection things, you know, around. So I was like, okay, well, 
this has got to be one of the hardest things. And so I'm like, I want to see if I can make that. Cause I wanted to, I wanted to test myself to see if I was capable of being in a unit like that, you know? And it was, if, if, if I got to the Navy recruiter and they said they wouldn't give me some sort of contract saying that I wouldn't go to the fleet, wouldn't go to Hayes gray and underway and, and go float and they they wouldn't say, we'll at least get you to the Naval Special Warfare Center at BUDS to check in. As long as you don't have an alcohol-related incident and you pass all the tests, we'll send you there. If they didn't do that, I was going to go Green Berets or Marine Recon, one of those two, or Rangers. So I had I had like a plan A, B, and C, and D. So I didn't go in there with one plan that if they shot that down, all my hopes and dreams would collapse. I've been fairly good about having a plan B and C in my life, not because I'm smart, just because um, I'm paranoid about it bad things happening. So I'm like, well, I'm assuming something bad will happen. So I'll have a plan B and a plan C. And so I just decided to go down that road. And and then um, we get, we get we, two weeks on the glacier, we get out, we get out of Alaska, or we get out of the Alaska, the Chugach range, get back to Anchorage. And I literally go to the recruiter in Anchorage going, okay, I'm ready to join the Navy. I'm ready to go to Bud. So um, how soon can I leave? And they're like, where are you from? I'm like, well, I live in Maryland. They're like, oh, man, we can't sign you up. You're not an Alaskan resident. You've got to go to Maryland and talk to those guys. I'm like, well, can you just call them? Because, like, literally, I wanted to go to the Navy from Anchorage. Like, I, I don't need to go back <laughs> to the house. I can go now. Like, right? I got my backpack um, with me. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So um, they're like, no, 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 you got to go. So I went back, got into the late entry program, and then went in and, uh, you know, went to Bud's. And then I, I ended up making it through. Um, didn't get rolled back. Um, so a lot of, so what happens in buds and, and, you know, any of these other selection courses, a lot of guys get hurt and they'll get, they'll get rolled back to the next class and they'll kind of join the next class roughly around where they left their, their, their class. Um, I, I didn't get rolled back and made it through and then yeah, I went into the teams and, um, this was in the nineties and, uh, it was great for a while, but it actually got really boring. The nineties to be in the military was pretty boring, honestly for it was for all of us and like everyone i knew was pretty much kind of getting over it because there wasn't a, there wasn't this this is going to sound maybe like kind of crazy but this is the reality of it there wasn't a war going on there was bosnia and there were some small things happening in bosnia but those were only like the top tier units and i wasn't there yet and so i ended up getting out i left the navy in 1998 i did six years in the, in the navy you know Five of those were um, at a SEAL team, got out, moved to Colorado, moved out here to Fort Collins, 98, um, started doing commission sales, like like outside and inside sales for a cell phone company, which I don't know how to sell. Like, okay. I figured I'd, okay, I'm like, okay, I can talk. I can talk to people. I'll just do it. I'll just figure it out. I actually did really pretty well at it. Got bored after about a year. Um, told my wife, hey, um, would you be okay if like we just went back into the Navy? And she's like, what? I'm like, yeah, this is, I can't keep doing the sales thing. It's so, it's just not me. I don't want to keep doing it. I, I can't do it. I mean, I, I was making d- decent money and I was one of the top sales reps actually, just because I was, I had a family at that point and kids. So I had to make money. Like there was no like, oh, I don't feel like selling something today. Like I had to. Um, and so we went back in, I went back in the teams we went to the East coast and, um, yeah, I did went through to three teams of the East coast and I finished my last decade, um, at, at like the top tier unit and that last decade was you know your post 9 11 um running and gunning going you know just constant combat deployments so you're training going back to combat training going back to combat iraq Afghanistan, other places um over in that region and and then then like 
that was a may that time period of that war was when I saw myself, all my friends on the team, like literally 95% of the people get divorced and become different people because we, we became different um, while we were overseas and we started to change the family that we had before the war kicked off also started to change because they were living under a, an extreme level of anxiety because, you know, watching the husbands and in a lot of cases, you know, the wives who were, who were service members go over and it was real. You didn't know. And, so, and sometimes you'd go into deployment and some people don't come back and people in our unit and people we knew really well were, were getting killed. And, and so that the, the, the stress of that started to kind of family started falling apart. Divorces were just like happening. Like, I mean, like all the time, like every, almost everyone I know got divorced. And it, and it makes sense when you look back on it, you're like, you know, back home, they're developing, you know, they're, they're raising the kids the way that, you know, they see fit and they're, they're running the household the way that makes sense to them. And it does make sense. And then we come in and we're like, Hey, why, why is all this happening? And they're like, Whoa, pump the brakes here. Big, big cat. Like I'm running the show here. You come and go all the time. Don't mess up the system. And they have a good point. Right. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so then finished that, you know, got out of the military right at 20 and um, moved immediately to the mountains. As soon as I could, I moved to the mountains. I moved uh, to uh, Ketchum, Idaho, um, Sun Valley, Idaho, where there's a ski area. And all I wanted to do, the primary thing I wanted to do is I wanted to get away from big populations. And I wanted to go in the mountains and be and just be still and go skiing. And I just needed to like... I needed a place, I guess, to heal mentally. And the outdoors for me were always that place. And I think for most people, even people that don't know it, that's the place that they should spend a lot of time. And so, um, and that was in Sun Valley, lived, you know, I was there for eight years and then I ended up moving to Colorado about a year and a half ago um, because I started working on mountain guide certifications and I needed to get good at climbing. And it was hard to get good at climbing and catch them because there wasn't a lot of climbing right there in town that was easily accessible. So it was hard to go and like, hey, I'm going to go climb for two hours and come back and do some work kind of thing. So basically, I moved to Colorado to help get good enough so that I can get into these guide courses so that I can, you know, keep working on my mountain guide certifications for skiing, climbing, all that sort of thing. Well, I want to go back to Buzz. I mean, you opened the, the the short film as kind of a you know a montage of of what Buzz would look like, and I've had a lot of people on here talking about that. Don't want to spend too much time on it because there's a thousand documentaries now. However, you've had this little boy who's had so much trauma from you know near death experiences to sexual abuse. Um, you have this amazing role model that becomes your father that adopts you, who is a military member. And your passion is climbing. And then you enter the SEAL teams and there's a lot of aquatic events in, you know, buds and selection. Um, what was it that allowed you, because I know you weren't a behemoth of a man, you know, you were kind of like my size, basically a little bit smaller than me. Um, what was it that allowed you to progress through and graduate when so many people did ring the bell? I felt, I felt, I had this feeling that I was going to beat all the bad things that happened to me and become something. So that gave me a lot of endurance to like um, take pain. So I was really like in a good 
in a, in a weird way, I was in a good headspace to make it through something really difficult because I had been through difficult things and I'm like, Oh, this, Oh, they're spraying us with water. At least I'm not in, you know, in a trailer park with a, with a fucking pedophile. You know what I mean? Like, like this isn't that bad. So it's all relative, right? Like what, what, what some people go in that might be going to buzz. That might've been the worst thing they've ex- experienced. Like the most discomfort, the most anguish, the most mental, physical um, challenge. But if you've been through worse, it, it puts it in perspective for you and it gives you more endurance to take it. I think. Um, if you choose to let let things like trauma and like that, if you choose to somehow help it fuel you fuel you in a positive way, and I don't think that's super easy. I think you you just you take that sort of that energy, and it's the energy there for me. It was always a combination of extreme hatred, distrust, and a drive to to save myself from ever feeling that again. And wanting to become a strong and, and basically an indestructible person so that it could not be hurt, which is not possible. We can all be hurt. I don't care who you are, you know. Um, and so going through it in my head uh, at the low moments, like in Hell Week and all that, when, when like all my friends quit, like all the guys were like, we're all going to make it. We we're training together beforehand. Every one of them d- didn't make it, which I was really bummed because there were some really good dudes. Um, so I made all new friends. But, you know, in that process of, of going through it, you, you, I just wanted to let myself become the, the person that I needed to make it through. So losing friends, just keep enduring, just keep putting one foot in front of the other, do your best every day. Even though you have your super low days where your knees are swollen and you can't keep up with the pack and oh, they're going to drop me. You just keep going. Even if you're running one mile an hour, just keep plotting and, and let them tell me I can't do it kind of thing. Right. Don't volunteer. Make them kick me out. And they never did. I mean, they tried, but you know, ended up making it. Um, and the the thing was is when I did that documentary, a lot of guys I know in the teams have a very very similar like parallel path in life that I had growing up. I just had a guy text me um, two weeks ago that I know who's a team guy, and he goes, "Dude, I'm so glad you did that that doc because like pretty much that's what happened to me growing up." And and like I well. Watching you was like watching basically a, a parallel of my life growing up. And so we find like in, in these in these cohorts, right? Because we're sealed, people that go to the SEAL team, there's like a cohort of people. There's a lot of, of crazy kind of childhood things that most people don't talk about. But after you meet, you know, guys for a decade, we share stories and stuff. And they're like, no shit. That, yeah, that was what my childhood was like. It was a lot less of, you know, your high school quarterback with a pretty girlfriend in the Valley Victorian. Um, coming from a very stable, you know, family, there was a lot less of that than I expected when I when I got in there, and and people were more like me, and I had that feeling like when I got to the, not in buds, but when I got to the team, like oh, I mean, I kind of I found my people here. I'm like these people. They're like me. They're like I knew people that would go to punk shows. Like I used to go to punk shows in DC at the 9:30 Club, and and like I had found my people, and it was awesome. Like I loved it. It was it was the best. Yeah. Doing this podcast and, and interviewing, you know, initially I'm obviously I'm, I'm a firefighter, so that was the the initial thing I thought I was going to be talking about. But as I start it, and I realize well, there's so much value in the military and these other professions, let me just expand this this lens a lot wider. And so I started seeing commonalities with these stories of men and women in uniform. And when you look at it, if you want to bury down trauma, then subconsciously you're going to find a profession that is, you know 
high energy, high adrenaline because you don't have time to think about it. Maybe if you're, you know, accounting in, in some office and you're self-employed, maybe you've got time to sit there with your thoughts. But if you're being screamed at in a, in a, in a fire academy or in buds and then progressing through where the incidents are life, you know, life-threatening, it's very little time for dwelling on the past. You also have the armor element. The better I get at these skills, the I mean, it is, the tougher I become, whether it's combat, whether it's firefighting, whether it's, you know, the, the paramedic side. But then is also that subconscious voice as well, I think, where that afraid little boy or little girl is like, I don't want people to feel like that anymore. And I think that's where the real service and empathy comes from. Even though I was hurt, I don't want anyone else to get hurt. So I'm going to go down this road. So then seven years later, and you and I are having a conversation today, the number of people that have these stories, some of them are extremely acute, some of them are less acute, but there's still that feeling of trauma that sends so many men and women into uniform. And I think where we do a big disservice in the first responder of mental health conversations is we don't ask about the time before you put the uniform on. Yeah, yeah, you know, I agree 100%. Yeah, and and you don't know when you're in the room with people doing the same profession, you you don't always know their their backgrounds, but if you dig into it, there's a lot more commonalities in, in the background growing up that got them there. Same kind of things got you there. And you're like, huh, wow, we kind of have very similar things in the background. And we both ended up as firefighters or as commandos. It's odd, right? <laughs> it's like, yeah. But I the that feeling of not wanting other people to feel like that. Robin Williams has a has a quote, um, and I'll butcher it, but it's somewhere along the lines is some of the most depressed people um become comedians and they want other people to feel good because they don't want anyone else to feel like they feel. And, uh, you know, obviously, obviously, you know, Rod Williams struggled with depression his entire life and then ended up, ended up winning in the end. Right. Um, but it's that same kind of feeling like you're like, Oh, I, I know what it's like to not be protected. I want to protect people because not being protected is, is um, it's not really an option. I don't want to see people go through that. And so, yeah, you want to help and, and, it removes like the money-making thing also. Like when I was in pretty much my whole life, I've never gone, I'm going to go into this profession because it's going to make me a lot of money. I've never thought like that. It's just not the way I think. I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with thinking like that because I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting to make a bunch of money. It just wasn't my drive. And it was never a driver for me. And it still, it still isn't to this day. I mean, it is, you know, once I get my, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs taken care of and maybe some extra cherries on top, I'm good. Right. <laughs> Um, but yeah, wanting to protect people, don't want people to, to feel like you felt. And, um, it can make some really amazing first responders and military people because you're willing to do a lot in that job and take risks to ensure that you're number one, kicking ass at your job. You're, you're an asset to the team. You're protecting your teammates and it feels amazing to do that. It really does. So you're one of, uh, not very many people really whose career I've had on the show has spanned either side of 9-11, especially you know, transitioning out and then going back in again. Talk to me about if if there's any at all, you know, what kind of training focus there was pre and then what your 9-11 story was and how that shifted through your eyes as far as tactics training, et cetera. Yeah. So we like I think all militaries, not just the US military, but we we look towards the most recent conflict and we get our, we get a lot of our training, you know, methodologies and tactics and techniques and procedures from the previous conflict. Well, 
you know, prior to 9-11, the, the previous conflict with, um, I mean, there was the, the Gulf War, but we're talking about like a significant decade of heavy combat was Vietnam. And so we would have people in the 90s that, you know, we'd have some, you know, trainers that were in Vietnam. And so we did a lot of things focused around the ways that they fought in Vietnam, right? Because you didn't know where the next war was going to be. You know, is the next war going to be Arctic? Is it going to be in the desert? Is it going to be everywhere? Is it going to be in the jungle? Um, and all those places are really hard to to train to be to be adept at and to and to thrive in. Like it, if you've never been to the jungle, like you go to South America, you think it's going to be one thing. The jungle the jungle will kick your ass in like twelve hours, twenty four hours. You've got sores everywhere. You're like everything's trying to bite you. You've already stuck your hand through black palm multiple times. You got infections. Like it just starts to erode you immediately. You know, um, so like those getting getting like the opportunity or like the, the the to like train like to do something in all those different environments i think is um was an enticing type of thing um but go back what was your question again? i want to make sure i'm nailing it um yeah it was, it was how did it pivot so what what was your 9-11 experience through your eyes and then what was that shift you're training for vietnam now all of a sudden that landscape is very different yeah and so um it's kind of funny, like when nine, on 9-11, when 9-11 happened that day on 9-11, we were at a training thing and we were doing a jungle training thing, like to train for the jungle. And uh, we found out what happened. We were out in the field for a couple of days and we didn't actually come back out of the field for three days until like 9-15, I think, or 9-14-ish. Um, but we were told uh, we're out there in this exercise. This is what happened. At first, we didn't believe them. Then they were like, no, this isn't part of the exercise. This was really happening. And then we went back to Virginia Beach and just started we just were just like, okay, what well, what are we doing? Who's doing what? And then the focus was, okay, well, it's Afghanistan, right? And there might be some other spots too, because we're going to go and try to crack the whip on, you know, we're going to shine a light in Afghanistan. And basically, for lack of a better term, all the bad guys are going to scatter once the light comes in, right? And so there's going to be a chase, like a global kind of thing going on probably. And so um, we, at that time, we were not a top tier unit. We were um, just a regular, regular platoon. And so we still ended up deploying, like we ended up not going to combat on that deployment. And we were all super bummed, right? We were like, it was it was a, a huge bummer that we didn't go over to Afghanistan or at least go on, you know, one of the Navy ships that was heading over in some capacity, just going over to where it was going on. And then the as the war unfolded, we were all, and I'm talking the coalition, not just the U.S., learning on the fly and learning live. And so like, okay, Afghanistan, is it the desert? Yes. Is it the mountains? Yep. Um, not really jungle, but so we're like, okay, so desert mountains, altitude, right? And then training, you start training for that environment afterwards. And then Iraq was basically just mostly desert. There's some mountains in Iraq, but um, not like Afghanistan. And so we started looking towards, you know, literally old books would come out on desert warfare, all the way back to like World War II, World War I, like, wow, you know, just to learn things that they may have known. I mean, yes, we have way better technology and all that, but you start studying, okay, desert warfare history. What do we like? What, what works there? What doesn't work? Um, well, we know that, you know, 1980, when they tried uh, desert one, they tried to rescue the hostages in Iran. They didn't have the right fil sand filters on the helicopter. Right. And they flew in the, the sands got sucked in the helicopters went down little things like that. Like how do we, how do we get around in the desert? And so we started learning to fly and, and we would, 
we started sharing information with our, within the unit and other units as well. And it got to the point, there were so many missions happening that the whole holding close and like not wanting to share things with other people because you're trying to, you're, you're competing for the very few morsels of missions that might come down, right? And you want to grab it immediately. It was not like that. There were so much, so many missions. It was just raining missions. And so we were sharing ideas and like, hey, we've been doing this. This doesn't work. This kit works. That one doesn't. And so we it, a lot of back and forth sharing with the UK forces, like the whole coalition, us, other other branches of the US military. And it was a it was a we're all in this together kind of feel because we definitely were. Um and so that's kind of where the the changes started to come in just learning how to fight in new environments and fighting a an enemy that was similar to Vietnam because they weren't always wearing uniforms in Iraq and Afghanistan. They were almost never wearing uniforms. And those wearing uniforms a lot of times weren't actually part of the, you know, IP Iraqi police or the ANA Afghan National Army. Maybe they were, maybe they weren't. So it was it was that who's the bad guy and who's not kind of thing, right? It wasn't it wasn't the cut and dry, there's the bad guy in his bad guy uniform, we'll shoot him. Right. It, it's it's a confusing battle space. Well, you ended up joining the tier one unit and you know, not again exploring what they did and all that stuff. But I think the real takeaway that parallels fire police, and I think is an important perspective, is from the other men that I've spoken to. There's an element of, um, you know, R and D when it comes to that. You know, you guys are at the tip of the spear and finding the best equipment, the best tactics, the best weapons. You know, whatever it is, strength and conditioning, nutrition, rest and recovery. Um, Talk to me about innovation. You're now in this spot where, you know, the, the, the team that you're a part of is, is hopefully raising the bar in all those parameters to make you even more efficient. What was the mindset on moving the needle when it came to that in that particular group that you were in? So we were, we were very fortunate to be in the group we're in because we, were, we had a lot of um, leadway in creating new things and questioning current tactics where if you take a conventional military unit and pretty much anywhere in the world, like a conventional military unit, your, your individual, you know, you know, private sergeant, you know, you're, you, you don't have as much say on what that unit's going to do because there's, you know, five, 10,000 people in that unit. When you get it down to where there's dozens or a hundred or a couple hundred, you're more agile. And in that, that is what it requires to be innovative. You have to be small because trying to be innovative um, in, a, in a massive organization, it doesn't matter if it's corporate America or a massive armored unit in the military, those big things are like big tanker ships. You're like, oh, we need to flip a UE. Like, okay, hold on. That's going to take about an hour, right? Whereas if you think spec ops, we're basically, in, we're basically on a jet ski. We're like, oh, we need to flip a UE. You can do it in 1.5 seconds, right? So we, ha- we had speed. And we had the permission and we had the funds and we had the, I would say the, we, we had the clout to where we were believable because generally we're a bunch of pretty experienced and capable and intelligent operators and commandos at that level. And so we could question everything from every, the uniform items we wore every day um, to the, to the tactics that we've been using and changing those tactics um, as, as war goes on, because every war has involved, the changing of tactics during the war if you know there might be some where they didn't change tactics but I, I would imagine that they probably that that mentality gets people killed in in droves so we had that authority was you, you know you, you'd see like a direct example of that we'd be in be in iraq you know it'd be like whatever summertime and you'd see a marine standing on a street corner at a checkpoint and uh 
he's wearing, you know, it's it's 130 degrees outside. And he's got full wraparound armor. You know, he's got his sleeves all the way down, his big heavy cotton. And he's wearing all of the required on paper equipment, right? And it all does have a purpose, but it can also become your coffin because you can heat stroke, heat exhaustion became super real. And so we would offer like, hey, do you want to like, I can get you all kinds of gear. Like, I'll give you my stuff, man, because you guys have a really hard job standing here broad daylight in a defensive position, waiting for a car to roll up full with full fertilizer, right? Their job fucking sucks. And a lot of those guys would get killed and they didn't even see the person that killed them. They didn't, even, they didn't even see it. It was a blast and they were gone. And so, But they're like, we'd offer them our stuff. And they're like, I'd love to have this, but we can't wear any of this stuff. Like, it, it's not authorized. I'm like, well, don't you want to, like, not get heat stroke? We're like, well, yeah, but we have rules and stuff. And, like, and so that right there is an example of the, the difference between agility and, you know, your big, slow-moving ship that doesn't adapt fast enough. And I was very glad to be on the agile side of, like, the U.S. military effort, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to put to you the question that that I ask everyone who saw combat, and again, it's not about delving into you know specific events, but more of an overview for the civilian. And the reason is, we get a very polarized view of war through our screens from thousands of miles away. So it's either very very pro-war, stacking bodies that God sort them out, very anti-war, they're all baby killers. And then we have, you know, our men and women, children, arguably sometimes that we send overseas who see and do things, you know, and, and it's not often reported. So regardless of the politics, and this could be any of the arenas you found yourself in, regardless of the politics, was there a moment when you did, you know, witness atrocities or whatever it was that you realized, okay, this, this particular action is justified at this point? Um, so there was... I mean, yeah, we saw like, you know, doing like, you know, I guess a dozen combat deployments. Um, you see awesome things like you see like really great, awesome, like heartwarming things happening in war. You really do. And then coming from our side and coming from, you know, the, the Iraqis or the Afghanis or, you know, some of the other spots that we, we would go to. Um, the, the, the thing is, is realizing that as a military person, you, you have to swallow this pill and everyone has to swallow this pill is that we, we are not politicians and we don't make policy. We are a tool in a giant toolbox of the United States government. And there's a bunch of tools that they decide to pull out and the politicians are the ones who pull the tools out. We don't pull the tools out. And when they, so, but we do want to be 110% ready to execute when they, when they say, Hey, you guys, we're going to use your tool to solve this problem. Our job isn't to go, hey, yeah, but have you thought about how this is going to impact? <laughs> That's not our job. Our job is to go, roger that, get get the mission and figure the best way to do it. And then we go and do it. We don't like debate the, the politics of it or the rightness or the wrongness of it. I mean, we do on the side and all that. But at the end of the day, you're, you're on an order to go do something. And you can give some pushback at the, at the, when you're at the higher levels. You can tell. You know, you can tell brass up there like, hey, um, in so many words, like that is a stupid fucking idea. And here's the reason why, because you're spending most of your time in the Pentagon with three screens in front of you and you're not here on the ground. And the reason we're not doing that is this. And if you can articulate it, then it's sellable. Right. And so realizing you're not a politician, you just go and do the best job you can. And that's where, you know, you hear like when you get to war, you've heard, you've heard this in movies and you know everywhere else pretty much is you end up fighting for the people alongside you. And that has a lot of truth to it because when you're there, the commitment's already been made. You're already on the ground. At that point, 
it doesn't matter if you want to be there or not. You're fighting for your lives a lot of times and not most of the time, but a, a lot of times you are fighting for your life. And so your job is just to get back to the base that night. And that, you know, and you're going to do um, within reason what it takes to get everyone back to the base that night. Um, and going and going through that, you, you start to get this pull where you start seeing bad things happening or you'll, you'll go in after a bombing. Right. And, you know, there's, you know, what, what it would be like if after a bombing with people involved. Right. And you go in there, you see these things and you're like, Holy shit. Like, okay. Yeah. There were some bad guys here, but you know, I, I'm pretty sure like, you know, these people in the ditch right here, they don't look like bad guys. They look like they're fucking 10. You know what I mean? Um, so that becomes a little bit of like, what the fuck are we doing here? Like, can we be a little bit better? Like, how can we, how can we crack the whip and just as like a precision, like the U S military crack the whip versus, Oh, there, there's a problem in the country. Let's go build a 10 army bases there and get a bunch of tanks. Let's basically just move into this country, which is, I think most of the time, an extremely stupid idea. When you look historically an occupying army just can't last. We get worn down, right? That's just a throughout the thousands and tens of thousands of years, like occupying armies don't do well because it's hard to sustain. And our goal there was not, Hey, we're going to make, you know, Afghanistan or Iraq, the 51st and 52nd state. That was never the plan. Right. So we got to the point where I, I called the crack, the whip there. What I just mentioned, I'm like, you know, what maybe we should have done is just identify like the peak problem kids over there. They're, they're causing the problems and just crack the whip, just get them. Right. And then come back and not try to move, you know, hundreds of thousands of troops and, and, and live in that country. And, and wonder what's going to happen. What the fuck do you think is going to happen? People that didn't even not like us before definitely don't like us now because we're in their neighborhood and we just bomb their fucking friends, you know, and so they're going to fight us. And now we have more enemies, right? And, but while you're there, you, that all of those thoughts and those experiences, you always just push them to the back of your mind because it, it, it matters. But for you in that time, in that moment, it really doesn't matter. You're fighting. So you go fight, you do the best job you can. You you try to do the best that you can on target, like while you're when you're pulling the trigger and when you're making decisions. Everyone I was with, like literally trying to make the best decisions that you can that night. Like, is that a shoot target? Is it not? I can't tell. Can you see that guy? I, I don't know if he's got a gun or not. You know, so you, like we spent a lot of time trying to do the right thing for sure. You're kind of torn because honestly, the job while you're doing it, it's an amazing job. And we loved it. We loved going on deployment because you're doing what you train to do and you feel good with the people you're with. Cause I'm like, dude, I'm like, Carl is not going to leave me anywhere. If something bad happens to me, he's going to like, he will, his legs will be off and he'll still be trying to drag me to safety. Right. The dudes are going to back you up. So going in with that sort of strength with a team is amazingly empowering. And so we wanted to go and do good. And we wanted to get the, you know, to get the people that were, you know, a direct threat to the, to the United States. And then we did that. We were doing that at first where you, you know, the target deck is like super important, high up people. And then, and then pretty soon you're kind of just going after gangsters, right? You go up, the dude's got seven series BMW, a Mercedes. He's in a mansion. I'm like, and you get the guy, he's literally wearing gold. Like he's on, like he's on some hip hop video. Like, seriously, like they're gangsters. And like, this guy's like definitely not like a Muslim extremist. He's just getting money and he's bringing in suicide bombers and, and ripping them out to like blast themselves. Right. But he's just, he's just getting rich. You know what I mean? So like, I hated those guys more than I hated, like, you know, your, your, your 17, 16 year old kid who just rolled in from Saudi or Yemen to join a cell so that he could martyr himself. 
I'm like, the kid is like, he's basically just been onboarded like a, like a gang kid in a big city in the United States. They, they recruit just like they recruit from just like gangs recruit. You find a kid from an unstable household. Maybe dad's not there. The bread earner's gone. Hey, you join us. We'll keep sending a little money to your family. We'll take care of them, you know, and you'll get a chance to become a hero. You'll be a martyr for the cause. And that's a hard thing for, you know, a 17-year-old kid who doesn't know anything different in his life to turn down, you know? And so that's how a lot of those, a lot of the the young people that would come and fight, they, they just got onboarded and they basically were joining gangs with the promise of, you know, the standard promise. They're going to go to heaven and they're going to enjoy the rest of their lives and they'll, their family gets money and then everyone will look at them. They'll be like a, a little a devoted spot somewhere in their household to his martyrdom, you know? And so weeding through all that, you get to the point where it's such a complex problem and it's so fucked in so many ways. You just go, well, Back to the tool thing. When they tell us to do something, we're going to go do and the best job that we can that night and or that day or whatever we're doing and let them figure it out. And, you know, that's that's one of the contrasts in Vietnam. The soldiers came back from Vietnam and get spit and shit thrown on and baby killer thing and all that. When, you know, a lot of those people that went there, they got drafted. They went over and a lot of them were poor. They're like, I don't have any money. Like, I'm going to get some money if I come here. At least I can send some back home. I'll go fight. Maybe I can gain some respect from a group that I fight with, you know, and, and, but now we have, it's a lot better now. So like coming back from the war nowadays, there is so much support in the U S for the, um, I don't like, I don't think anyone knows how many pro veteran groups there are in the U S right now. I don't think anyone actually knows that number. It is a lot. And it's awesome because there's a lot of support out there. Um, and it's gotten to the point where I, I mentioned this, um, I was chatting with a buddy at my Andy, um, it's it gets it gets kind of to the to the point where you're you're like you get a little bit lost i would say with what you're doing and 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 who you are and who you're going to become and what are we doing over here but at the end of the day we we all knew the mission and we and we we held to that 911 thing like let's go get the the guys that are part of this and then and then the cells that are growing because of our presence here and all that so we stayed focused on that and that's a and that is a very respectable target to keep going after because if it does represent a direct threat to the united states then yeah we should go get those people but you don't need to move an entire military into another country and take over an entire country to do that that mirrors what i've heard from so many people that surgical approach you know get the targets get the uh, the training camps and then get out and i think this is this is why we need to hear these voices and i'll get to the kindness and compassion next because that's another voice we don't hear but even with this it's like there's sometimes a necessity and we need you know as they say rough men to do things while people sleep in their beds and women um but at the same time i mean i'm completely naive when it comes to the world of the military but i can see if you move people into another country that is now a breeding grounds for enemies that you never had until you move into another country so you've just made it exponentially harder to achieve that mission and what i hear over and over again about afghanistan specifically just to, to single that out so many of your community from all the different branches have said our team should have gone in executed you know mission x y and z and then got out again, which is kind of like, you know, if I'm on a roof of a, of a structure fire, I go up there, cut the hole, and then get the hell off before the damn thing collapses underneath me. So, you you know, you get the people that are trained for that. You send them in as, you know, with, with minimal visibility. They take care of it. You come back, and then, and then, you know, and I know I'm simplifying it, but that seems to be 
a resounding common denominator from so many people on here. And the reality was 20 years of, of occupation. That's good to hear. I like I like to hear that other people think like I think. It makes me feel like lots okay, of people do. I promise you. Crazy. Okay, this is like a this is like a legit thought. Even though I've talked to it with my close buddies, but we're such a small group of people. Like it's good. To, it's good to hear that. I'm, I'm glad you told me that. Like that. Yeah. So the other thing that we don't get on our screens is the kindness and compassion that is shown, whether it's from our military to others, whether it's from the the indigenous people, because again, the media does a great job of tarring an entire nation with the same brush. So we're at war with Afghanis. Well, no, I mean, now, as I've been educated by people like yourself, Afghanistan is, you know, an incredible amount of tribes. And most of these people are being oppressed by, you know, the, the extremist few. And so I hear so many, I mean, all kinds of stories from us taking care of the dogs in Afghanistan, you know, the, the, the veterinary surgeons in, in the U.S. military. So you're, again, amid this, this battleground, what are stories of kindness and compassion that really kind of resonated with you? So some, some um, depending on what your, your, your job was there, you may have seen a lot of that or you may have seen like small amounts of it. I would say I saw less than maybe, let's say, um, you know, doctors that were over there, both military and civilian nurses, um, PAs that went on med, we call them med caps. So they would go to a village and they would just say, hey, um, where's the village elder? Hey, we're just here to do medical stuff. Um, so if you have anyone in your village that needs some sort of medical care, like we're not saying that you're limited by anything, just get in line. And then the lines, like we'd see them every once in a while, the lines some, on these med caps were like would be considered like blocks long right and people just lining up with with a lot of like very curable like very like kind of simple problems that they just don't have the 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 technology the capacity um or that they don't have the permission to get the medicines that's required because of ideology and so i would say that those medcap people double-edged sword right they went out and helped a tremendous amount of people like during the med cap also would be a great time to build a well right like hey let's drill a well right there i'll get you guys some better water and stuff but then they would also see like the bad things that were happening people coming in with amputated limbs you know eight-year-old stepped on a russian landmine you know that the russians dropped decades ago and and so i, I could see how being in that position would be extremely rewarding and extremely traumatizing because at the end of the day when you you see a kid who's eight years old. I don't care what language he speaks, what color he is. He, I see my son. I see my friend's kids that ride big wheels down the street. That's who I see when I see a kid. You know what I mean? And so the things that, you know, because we were, our job was pretty much offensive operations. And so it was just just raids. That was our, we just doing raids, right? And so little things that you'd see guys do big tough motherfuckers man like just just i mean like vikings right like dudes are just burly big huge look scary and they are scary right like you see some you, you know some bad guys got dropped you know they're they're no longer living they're laying out and then you got to move the kids and the women from like and they ha they have to walk by them because we need to get them to another area that's safer because maybe there's there's a potential like explosive situation over here where EOD needs to check for something, right? So we've got to move these kids past what we don't know the relation between the kids and that. Maybe it's his dad, his uncle. Maybe he doesn't know him. Maybe, maybe there are dudes that just rolled in from Yemen, did a house 
basically just um, did a home invasion and said, you guys are going to house us here and don't tell anybody because we're going to go do activities that for the jihad. So you don't know. And so what you see these big burly dude, like take a blanket and, you know, throw it. And I would do it too, like throw it over a kid's head. So they don't have to see that. Who knows what else they see in their lives. But if we can maybe just save him from seeing if that's his dad right there or something like that, even though we're like enemies, the dad, the kid's not my enemy. I don't want him to see that shit, you know? And so you kind of protect their eyes and like, Hey, let's get them over here. Let's get them some water and get them some snacks and give them a ball to play with. If they have it in them to play with, play with something you, they usually didn't usually just so traumatized, like crying. They want to, or the look in their eyes is like, they're beyond crying. They're just, they're, they're in shock, you know? And so things like little, little things like that really don't think they don't have a big impact, but they have like that micro impact where, you know, maybe the maybe someone there like saw it and it it and was like you know what these americans like why would they cover the kid oh they didn't want him to see him like maybe they're not complete barbarians like you know what i mean maybe they're they're humans too like like we are and when you first go to war right you're you're jazzed up you've been trained for a long time to do it right and you're ready to do your mission press your buddies you want to be an asset to the team you want to pat on the back afterwards you didn't get scared you know when the when the firing started you were you were like there on the spot so you want to do a really good job and so your 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 focus there is you know becoming an asset to the team as the you know the years go on and you got deployment after deployment after deployment when you start forgetting how many deployments that you've had you 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 become your mindset's a little bit different over there you definitely are still going to be an asset to the team that never loses the number one position right you always want to be an asset to the team but you, you your your judgment i would say and your sort of hatred for the people we're fighting for me anyway and for a lot of the guys i work with it kind of that fire kind of gets tamped down a little bit you're like you know at the end of the day, like who's to say if I grew up in this village here in this town in the mountains or wherever in Afghanistan, and I grew up in like literally in a Taliban village, I would probably be Taliban. It's not like I'm some genius, like, nope, I'm gonna I'm a born-again Christian and I'm gonna go to America. And like we're we're we really are products of of how we're brought up. You know, I'm like, I'm like, what's the difference between me and that that person right there? Like he's you know 19 years old, I'm you know, I'm 28 or whatever it was at the time, 35, or I'm like. There's not that much difference. We're both fighting, right? We're both fighting for what we believe in, right? And we both believe we're right, right? <laughs> and so, and I still believe I'm right. Well, we're right for the most part. Um, and so that's a, it's a more mature view and it's an experienced view. And it it takes the, a little, a lot of the sort of patchy on the back war, yeah, yeah, we're, we're, we're fighters type guys. It, it kind of, for me, sort of dumb, it's sort of like, it dimmed that that light a lot where I was like, I don't really need to prove myself anymore and be a tough guy. I just want to do the best job I can for my team here and um, keep learning, make less mistakes next time and just be a good commando. Right. And and represent the United States and represent the unit that's down there doing it. You want to, cause you are, you're to them, you are the United States of America and to even prove it. We've got a big old flag on our chest and we got flags all over the place. I don't know. Like, like like five flags going or something right um and so you want to do the best job you can and you look forward to getting back home to the family and you think you're you haven't changed but you are definitely changing a lot and you don't see it right because it's hard for us to see ourselves and to be be real with ourselves and to 
to even somehow have someone help and get the visibility like hey you're changing man like you're and it's not for the better your family is maybe getting a little scared of you because you're you start you know snapping really quick you know you're 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 short with them you there's the joy is gone you don't do fun things anymore everything's like a, a task that needs to be accomplished and so that's in my case that's what happened to my family like i sort of became the person that i became like i sucked the love out of the family and so you still have that kindness and that 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 desire to be a good person right but also you want to be a good soldier so sometimes being a good soldier afterwards you don't feel like a good person and sometimes when you're a good person maybe you didn't feel like you were a good soldier that night maybe you were too good of a person you know what i mean so there's 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 no win there really i don't think there's a win there's there's a there's just degrees of right and wrong you know and you're never always right and you're never always wrong but there's always wrong in there somewhere during the war like there's always something that they've done better or you know and that's when it took me a few years after getting out but started meditating um even though it seemed like uh, meditating this is what all the weak people do right um until you start like paying attention to like the athletes and the really impressive business people on the planet that meditate and it was tim ferris's podcast that i've been listening to for like ever um where i first started hearing him talking about meditation i'm like okay this dude's like talking about meditation he's got some pretty legit people on here that meditate you know like you know, CEOs were one of the most successful companies on the planet. And I was like, okay, well, maybe there's something to this. So I started doing that. And it takes a long time to sort of shake your, your, your commando self. If you've been doing a lot of war or you're a cop on the street in a, in a bad district and you've been seeing crazy things for years and years and years, and it becomes normal to you. And so you don't feel like you've seen a lot of crazy things necessarily because the people you're with have seen them too until you start talking to other people that haven't. And then you're like, Oh, that, that story was a little too crazy. I probably shouldn't have shared that. Like, <laughs> Please stop crying. Like, uh, maybe that was a bit too much. Like, and I've done that before. I've been guilty of that. Where like, okay, that was way too much. I shouldn't have said anything. Not because it was classified. There's no classified information in those situations, but it's just gnarly. It's just brutal. And you forget that other people um, haven't not necessarily seen things like that. And so you start to find, try to find your place to, you know, re-enter re the atmosphere of becoming a, a successful civilian. Right. And I didn't want to do anything past 20. So I, I, I got out and started meditating. And for me, going to the mountains was where I needed to go to heal. I needed to go heal myself. And it was not going well for me. Like at the end, we'd, we had, my last my last deployment was 2011. We had one of our ships shot down on Extortion 17. We lost basically half our team that was in Afghanistan um, in one in one uh, one operation. They got hit. Rear tail rover got hit. They went through a three RPG ambush and they um, hit the ground, and no one survived. And that was my. It, it was already planned to be my last deployment, and then that happened and I'm, that would just put me and then that combined with the divorce is going through my kids didn't want to be near me because I was um I become like a I became an asshole yeah I was an asshole I was I was short um and this isn't me realizing at the time this is me talking to my kids and my ex-wife years later about what I was like because I believed I was good to go I'm like hey I'm doing a good job out there for the country I'm trying hard like my intentions are great but that's not who they saw. 
they saw actions of a person that I didn't think I was, but I was that person. And it took years for me to realize that. And so once like I, I realized that I wasn't the awesome, really good person that I thought I was and the great dad and, and husband that I thought I was, that was a really good thing for me to learn because I was like, okay, what else about myself am I not seeing that other people are seeing? And so moving the mountains, doing the meditation thing and sort of letting the, letting that aggressive mindset sort of fall off of you, but it doesn't fall off at once. It, 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 it comes off in layers kind of, and you can feed it and you won't lose those layers. If you keep feeding it, you'll, it will grow. It's almost like it's a fungus, right? That, that, that tension and that wanting to be like indestructible, an indestructible soldier that never gets hurt, that executes missions, that has no feelings. Like you, you, if you think of yourself almost like kind of a Terminator kind of person, that's who I need to be to be strong. And that is not who you need to be, right? Not even in war, you don't need to be that. There's certain times for that, like these slivers of time where you do you do need to be a machine. But 95% of the other time, that, that doesn't help you in anything, really. Um, and so once I found that out, I, I was already meditating and I was already started doing yoga and started like to read other books and like, okay, I need to figure myself out because all I know is being in the military for 20 years. And I was gone. I did the math once I was gone seven months out of the year for 20 years. So my ex-wife, she raised our kids. I would show up here and there and, you know, buy the kids presents and, you know, take them to hockey and do some dad things and then be gone again. So I was just a sort of an unpredictable dude that would show up sometimes and I lost those years with them. You know, I gave those, all of us that do a job that you're gone all the time. I mean, firefighters, you know, those shifts are gnarly. You're 24 hours, you know, on or 48 on and 24 off or all those different combos. You're gone a lot. And so are cops are gone all night. You know, especially working the night shifts, you're not home at night. And so you, you're creating a situation and you have that is not going to go the way you idealize in your head when you first started a family. Because I, I pictured, you know, us like riding off in the sunset, retiring together. We'd all move to the mountains and, 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 and it went high five and the family's great. And that's how we would finish life. And that did not happen at all. And it was my fault because I was the one driving the tension. And, and, and I was the basically the source of the pretty much the troubles at home, you know, and not 100 percent, but I would say probably 80 percent maybe more, right? If I'm being totally honest. Um, and so the best thing, the one thing that I've avoided, and I don't know if it's necessarily a good thing, but for me, I felt like through the years since I got out, this was healthy for me is I don't, I don't engage a lot in veteran um, activities. And I have done it a few times. Um, and I'm sure some psychologists can explain this to me um, I'm, I'm not trained in that whatsoever, but when I would go to those things, I felt like I was losing ground and going back and we would sit around and drink and tell war stories. Right. And I felt like every time I did that, I would lose ground, the ground that I'd made to heal from the war. I feel like I'm like, okay, I just went right back and I'm starting over again. I feel the same feelings. I'm frustrated. I'm not sleeping. The anxiety is fucking crazy. You have like all these scenarios, these hundreds of scenarios playing in your head that you've been through, you're watching people die, you're killing people and you're living in that, in that state. And it's a state of stress and tension. 
and and it's unhealthy completely. And I'm sure it leads to disease. It has to. Like I'm sure it's not good whatsoever. Um, and I know people that don't leave that, and they you get you can get stuck in it. You get stuck in the bottle. You get stuck if you start doing drugs to like distract yourself. And it's a people have to do what they think is the best way to heal. And for me, I decided that I'm going to go to the outdoors and I'm going to skiing and climbing and get back to what I was doing in high school that brought me so much joy and so much happiness. And it also fit well with the military because in the military, you have a team, you're doing something dangerous in the mountains. There's a team, you're doing something dangerous. It takes planning beforehand. You got maps out, software programs, you're planning a route, you're checking the weather. It's like, it's a little miniature operation, like going in, you know, not going like, you know, climbing rock, like down the street kind of thing. I'm talking like going to Alaska or going to like bigger, do, doing bigger things. It is pretty much just like going on a special operation. There's not a lot of people, limited resources. You got to go quick. And the margin for errors or the margins are kind of slim. You got to kind of nail it or bad things can happen. And so I like that aspect of climbing that it's still, it doesn't pull me back in a negative way. I take the tools and push them in my mind, like in a positive direction. So I take what I learned in the military doing that. And now I'm doing this for something positive. We're going to go climb this mountain or get up this, this hard ice line that's hard to climb or something like that. And that's rewarding. And so each person is different. And I don't think that has you know, gone through jobs that have trauma and jobs that are really heavy on you and your family. You have to find the path for you that feels right. And not everyone's path is going to be the same. Some people should go to veterans groups regularly, maybe weekly and chat with guys. Maybe that's the part of their healing process they need to do, but you need to find that. The one thing that I guarantee is not the way is heavy drinking and drugs. That's a temporary, it's like, yeah, you'll feel good real, real, real briefly. It's like, it's like putting a, a bandaid on a gunshot. Wound. You know, the, it, the blood's going to come out. You know, you know. Well, you talked about Tim Ferriss as someone, I listened to him, Joe Rogan, Barbell Shrugged and the squad room of the four I was listening before I started this. And Tim, I love the way Tim interviews. I mean, he's, he's very different than Joe Rogan. He put those two together. I think you've got a pretty, you know, middle of the road, which is kind of how I try and go. Yeah. But you, you hit the nail on the head. You were like, I tried meditating because these high performers use it. And this is, I think, one of the problems with the mental health conversation with the guys and girls that haven't bought in yet. It's like, all right, so you still believe that it's weak. Let's shift for a second. We know in, in psychology and neuroscience to get into a flow state, you have to have a clear mind. So you want to be the absolute top of your game in a tier one organization or as a firefighter or a police officer then do the same things that the athletes that you love do, the same things that some of the most successful business people do. And this is what's interesting is it's not about just undoing some of the trauma in your head. It's moving the needle on, on your performance as well. So you don't have to go, oh, I think I'm healed now. I can stop meditating. Meditation, new calm is a new thing I just discovered. You know, all these things, they're going to keep benefiting you and i'm sure as a climber i'm assuming the the more calm that your mind became probably the better climber you became too oh 100 yeah 100 um and you, seeing seeing examples from pro athletes or very successful business people it has legitimacy so i'm like okay i'm gonna i'm gonna listen i'm gonna listen to i'm gonna at least listen to them and when i started meditating i didn't get it at all i'm just now starting to get it like eight years later because i would be like i don't know how to do it right and then you're watching these videos and all like how to meditate on YouTube. And like, this book says you're doing it wrong. And, and so you get worried about doing it wrong. 
But then what I just resign myself to is like, I'm just going to sit here. I got to tune out all this whole how to meditate thing. And I'm just going to like, just sit here and I'm going to think of a bunch of crazy things because I can't think about nothing. Cause I don't know how to do that. <laughs> and so now I'm learning that that is the point of it, right? Is you can sit there and let these thoughts come in and just let them go. Don't, don't come in, grab it, box it up, nail it to the floor and start yelling at it and dealing with it and getting stressed out about it. Just go, okay, I, that's, that's a thing right there. Let's let that slide right off the other side. And then what that does is what I've noticed, I just noticed it this year, actually, what it does is it gives you mental durability for problems in life. Because when you sit there, it's a lot of times those problems while you're meditating. And if it's like really quiet in your house or wherever you're doing it, they become kind of loud. Like, man, I don't know why I just thought of that. I haven't thought of that in three years. And that is a crazy thought of something that happened to you. But in, in it, and that those thoughts, they almost want, to come into your mind and then anchor in like a parasite and grab you again and be like, Nope, I'm not leaving. But meditation like teaches you like, no, it's okay. You don't, they don't have permission to like take up space in my head anymore. Like you have to let, let that happen. Right. Just going to let it go. And so realizing that that also gives you mental durability in other places in life, like in climbing or dealing with, you know, stressful problems that happen in business. Cause you know, I have, I have an apparel brand. And so like when stressful problems happen, I get, I literally can feel like, Oh, okay. Here comes one problem. And I used to, I used to like go, oh shit, another fire to put out, of course. Right. And then you almost like you have this victim-y mentality, like, of course that's happening to me today. And you start to get rid of that little bit of like reactive victim-y mentality. Everything's always going to be bad. And you and you have a better, calmer, like reasoned look at the problems of life because the problems are never going to stop coming. There's times when they'll come faster and closer together and then other times where they're like further apart and easier, but there's always going to be problems. We, we don't get rid of the problems until we're dead, right? And, and even then, I don't know. But, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Your ex-wife is up in, in heaven like, oh, bloody hell. <laughs> and, and, and one thing that – I keep saying one thing, but this is another one thing that I did have and I feel really fortunate that I had it is that I easily had goals. I. I never really struggled with having like actual goals because I would pick something that would excite me and it seemed really hard. And so getting out of the military, I was like, I want to get on ski patrol. I didn't know how to ski. So I'm like, I gotta go, go learn how to ski. It'll take me a couple of years. You know, I'll, I'll work on it. And all I can, all they can do at tryouts is just tell me, Oh, you didn't make it. You know, try again whenever we hold tryouts in two years or whenever they, they do it. And so my goal of going to ski patrol and then that gave me drive. So as soon as I got, you know, out to the West coast, I had to drive to make ski patrol. So I skied like hundred over hundred days a year, but I wasn't completely healthy. I was also sitting at the bars in town most days of the week, drinking gallons of beer and cocktails and just drinking every day. And then I was getting fat, right? I mean, down, like down to like my low one eighties right now, but at, the, at that point I was like two twenty five. you know, I was, I was heavy and I was, also still lifting weights because that was what we did a lot of squats, deadlifts, like big three lifts kind of thing. And I'm like, I want to get faster in the mountains. Um, weighing 225 is not super conducive. And all these mountain people around here that are mountain goats, none of them weigh 225. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're all like lean, fit. And so it took me, it did take me years to like kind of get out of the bar scene where that was my social environment basically became hanging out at the bar. Right. I, I see my friends at the bar every day. It was like cheers almost every day you go to the bar and you start drinking. And I don't do that anymore. I still, I still drink, but nothing like I did back then. And so that was, you know, you have to heal yourself really 
you can use input and people can tell you everything, but ultimately you're the one that drives past the bar, doesn't park and go in, right? You're the one that goes, not, not today. I'm going to go, I'm going to go on a run today. Not, I'm going to go to the gym. Not today. I'm going to go on a hike. And like little tiny changes over time is what I found myself doing, which I did not want to do. I wanted everything to change immediately. I'm like, okay, I'm going to stop drinking. And then, so I would go knee jerk on everything, right? I'm going to stop drinking. Um, and then I'm going to just start training. And then I would, I would stop drinking. And I would last for like two weeks and I'll start drinking again. And then it would be back in the bars. Right. And so then I, it wasn't by design. It might've been like a combination of like reading some books about that process, but I, I said, okay, I'm just going to try to do one good decision for my goal today. Like, what could I do? I could not, I'm going to, instead of drinking six beers, I'll drink two and go home. And then eventually I stopped just being at the bar. Right. And then, so eventually you find yourself in a better position and you're like, Oh shit, it kind of worked, but it took like seven years, you know, cause sometimes it's not as fast as you want, especially if you're like a stubborn asshole, like I am, you know, I want it now and I want it to be instant and we all kind of do it to a certain degree. And so those small changes um, started to add up. And that is one of the biggest things that really helped me was having a goal and like doing just one thing today, that's going to be, be a little bit better towards going to getting towards that goal. And then my, I got remarried. It's awesome. Woman, Tamara, my wife, now I've been together six years and um, she's recommended. I start taking guiding courses because I was rock climbing a lot and ice climbing and, and skiing a lot. She's like, why don't you like just start taking guide courses and become a mountain guide? And I was like, that's a great idea. I'm definitely doing that. And then like, I think that night I signed up for my first course, right? <laughs> it's like, I was like, that's such a good idea. And I had thought about it, but having her support, it meant a lot to me. And then it was like, okay for me to do that. Like, right? I was like, like, okay, yeah, I can go like good. It, Cause it's going to involve not being at home. Right. And I was kind of hyper aware of not ditching her at the house all the time. Like I did my first wife of 21 years. I was gone seven months out of the year. I didn't want to, I didn't want to become that person. again. And so having the goal of becoming a mountain guide, now it, it's, it's become something like extremely healthy for me because like I have like a training program I'm doing and, and, I, and I, have, I have all the goal climbs that I need to do to get me ready for the next guide course kind of thing. And so if you don't have those goals, like if I got out and I didn't have like a, a lofty goal and I, the goals have to be lofty, like you should, it should be something that you think about and you go, oh, if I could do that, fuck yeah. I don't know if I can do it. But man, if I could do that, that would be something, that'd be something else. Like it would put me in a really cool place in life. If you don't have that, I think one of two things are happening. You just haven't thought hard about, about what brings you joy in life. And maybe you can't see what brings you joy in life because you're so miserable from past experiences. You don't have a space to feel joy anymore, right? And maybe you're just not ready for that. And the other, the other thing is you may be trying to live a direction of life that other people want you to live. Um, but it may not be healthy for you anymore. If you come out of something and, hey, you you have a chance to go join a law firm, but you have no interest in become, in being doing lawyer work anymore because you're, you were miserable doing it before, but it makes money and you want to do it, you have to balance, hey, yeah, you do have to make money, but you also can't be completely miserable because you're if you are completely miserable, you're not going to be good at that thing anyway. And so finding what brings you joy and also figuring out a way to make money while you're doing it is important. The whole follow your passion thing is great if you're a trust fund kid or you just some, somehow have money, right? But you have to make money, especially if you have a family, right? You have responsibilities and then you have what's a good healthy thing for you and trying to find 
align those two is, is really difficult. It's difficult. And, and especially in the early years when you're fresh of coming out of really shitty situations where you need to heal, but it's doable and everyone can find it. You just have to find your version of that and find a, a balance of producing money, you know, so I can have a good living. I can have medical insurance so my kids and wife can have medical insurance kind of thing. Um, but then also doing something that I'm passionate about that really brings me a lot of joy that maybe doesn't involve them. You know what I'm saying? I just made yeah. a video today because I had some inertia come in. I had um, everything from, we had the hurricane coming in. So there's an element of preparation. My son turned 16, so I was preparing him for his driving tests and getting his birthday ready and having to catch up on interviews. And, and my wife's been going through some stuff. So it was just one of those things where if I'm prioritizing, there were things more important than driving all the way to the gym and doing an hour and a half workout, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I got in and I was still doing, I, I coach a class every week and I take part in them and I was still doing jujitsu like once, twice a week. So I wasn't like stopped completely, but that guilt and that shame of like, oh, you're supposed to be doing X, Y, and Z every single week. And I just went in today and I moved for 30 minutes. I did Wolf Brigade's programming and, you know, I swing in maces and doing kettlebell stuff. And so I'm like, this is a really good time to make a video. Not when you're crushing whatever movement it is, you know, and looking good and your hair's done and everything. My head looked fucking mess and I was sweating and I was just like, I just showed up and did some stuff. If you fall off the wagon, it's okay. And as you said, the point, the reason I'm, I'm saying this is, you know, you get some people's perspective of Jocko, David Goggins. Well, I need to change everything. and I'm going to start tomorrow to underline what you said choose one thing and do that and then you build up a routine and i was you know abs abstaining from from uh drinking i was meditating every day i've found this new calm thing i was doing foundation training for my back i was doing really really well and then i just you know hit a wall and, and a, a week and a half went by and i was like fuck i kind of the wheels fell off this so you just go pick up the wheels and you put them back on and don't beat yourself up because whether it's you know your addiction your your health journey you're stopping cigarettes whatever it is the only thing you can affect is today and you don't have to start at the intensity that you fell off it's okay to have a little on-ramp as long as you said in selection one mile an hour as long as you're still moving forward but i think with this instagram highlight environment that we live in it's like well you know it's all or nothing it's like well no if, if you've if you had momentum and it stopped for whatever fucking reason it's okay just to do go back to how you started before let me do two beers instead of four and then work your way back up again yeah yeah there's a <clears throat> i just watched this two, two days ago and this is a it's like this is the <laughs> the most legit that i've seen video about why you should meditate and it's a documentary about jerry lopez the surfer and so jerry was called mr pipeline right and so I didn't know this about him because I never walked. I've never. I lived in. I lived in Oahu, and you know, when I was in the Navy, I actually lived in Haleiwa on the North Shore for three years. Surfed all the time. I was not good at all, but I was. I got good enough to surf up there on medium days, I would say. And so, the Jerry Lopez documentary, it, it they show pictures of Jerry riding pipeline. And, you, and to this day, if you start watch people ride pipe, like there's all kinds of different like body styles, right? Guys are like super active, super tense. But the thing with Jerry was he would meditate on the beach before he would go out and people would like make fun of him because he was meditating and it was like not a tough guy thing to do. But then you'd watch him drop in the pipeline. Right. And he would just go, he'd stand up and then he would just be motionless. Like his upper body. He wasn't like, Oh, oh I'm in this huge barrel. Like it, it, there was no, like 
panicky stuff. He was, he, he did yoga and he meditated and he would just stand up and watch him. And he was like, just standing there. Like he was standing on a street, but you know, there's, there's this angry barrel behind him. That's just like trying to eat him. And he's just standing amongst this completely chaotic situation. And the reef's only, you know, four to you know six feet below your feet at pipe. It's right there. Like people hit it all the time and people die hitting it, but he's standing there completely calm like he could like like he could light a cigarette you know and i'm like that is what meditation gets you i just saw that two days ago i'm like that right there encompasses calm mind in a in a storm and you get there by by meditating is one of the ways you can get to that and it's probably those the most common way to train your mind i would say to get to that point where you let things go and you just focus on what needs to be done and don't waste a bunch of energy mental or physical doing a bunch of stuff that doesn't add to the direction you're trying to go Right, you become more efficient and more calm, and kind of a cooler person to be around. Honestly, yeah. Well, the way that it's portrayed in the documentary, and in the way you know you've told the story today, there's clearly an acknowledgement, acceptance, uh, an element of healing about your early life. What you know, you talked about climbing, you talked about meditation. How did you start unpacking? Not so much even the, the I mean, the combat as well, but those early years when you had so much trauma, how did you get to this point now where you're able to be open and vulnerable and accepting about those elements as well? The first time I told anyone about what all the things that happened to me as a kid, I'd been married to my wife. I want to say for about 14 years. And I told her, I started to tell her one day, I'm like, yeah, hey, I, I got to talk to you about something that, probably has a lot to do with the way I am. And it blew her. She was like, holy shit. Like you've been together 14 years, dude. Like, because I just like, there's nothing I can do about it. So I'm like, well, I'll just, it'll just, I'm just going to leave it there. And hopefully it'll just die on its own. It doesn't, those things don't die on their own, you know? And so I talked to her and then it felt good after that. And then after that, I, I started sharing my story in appropriate situations with people. Right. Or if somebody would ask me and it felt better because you're kind of like, like even talking right now, like you're offloading that tension a little bit. But then also I started to see the other side of that is maybe there's value from someone else hearing about this that's gone through what I've gone through and probably worse that's out there that needs to hear someone like me, not because I could easily like my public persona because I, I, I have an Instagram account. I could easily just be flexing all the time and showing myself lifting weights and, and be tough guy. Right. And just be like, I was in the teams. I'm badass. Like a <laughs> lot of people do that. And I know who they are. Like, I'm like, you're not that fucking badass. Shut the fuck up. But I think being, being more real because it just feels better to me just to be honest, because I don't see there's any value in putting out there that, Hey, look how good I did. I was in the Navy for 20 years. And I made it through the selection courses and look at me. No one gives a shit. It's not, it's, I mean, yes, it's okay. But I mean, dude, there's so many people doing so many impressive things out there. I think what you want to do is if you have something to tell or you can provide value and maybe help someone else out of the situation so they don't have to like go through as many dark years as you did. Because a lot of people, they don't make it through the dark years until they find the way out. A lot of people, they don't make it out to the light. They kill themselves or they they, they drink themselves to death or they they just become destructive, right? And everything they do is like, they're just self-destructing. They're not going to blatantly go and kill themselves, but they're just waiting to die. You know, and I know people like that. In a, in a, in a way, I, I had a lot of years where I was like that too, where I would just be like, ah, if I died, it would be all right. Like, I'm not really a very happy person. So, 
yeah, fuck it. You know, that's a very unhealthy place to be. But I think once I talked to my wife and then um, she may have actually mentioned like, you know, if you have a chance to tell people about this, you might help somebody. She might have told me that actually. Um, and so now that's when I did the documentary, um, K-Rom Studios, they contacted me and I said, hey, I'm not going to tell you guys like a bunch of SEAL Team stories. There's like 12,000 books and movies already. Like there's no value in it anymore. Everyone knows what we do. Like your commandos and you kick doors and you do SEAL Team shit, whatever. I said, I'm willing to talk about other things that might be interesting and might be of value to people that kind of were similar to me growing up. And they said, okay, well, let's chat and see how it goes. And so I basically just put the wall up with things I wasn't willing to talk about. And then, but they were still willing to say, yeah, let's, let's, let's see if there's a story here that we think is interesting. I'm like, okay. So we had a bunch of Zoom calls and they're like, there's a story here. We're going to do it. And I'm like, okay, cool. I, I was really relieved because I thought for sure, as soon as I said, I'm not going to tell a bunch of SEAL team stories, they're going to go, oh, well, we'll go find someone else that will. And there are guys that, that will do that. And, um, but I've gotten contacted by so many people after seeing that documentary and literally just two days ago, I got contacted by someone else. Like, dude, that is me. Like I'm looking at my life like that. Not exactly, but that's pretty much me. And I'm so glad you said that. They're like, I've never told anyone about what happened when I was little. I never told anyone about my struggles. My kids don't know. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to talk about it to somebody or at least go get a therapist or a counselor and start, I need to offload this because, you know, I'm drinking, I'm, I'm slamming, you know, half a fifth to a fifth of vodka at night. Maybe not directly because of that, but that is in the mix of the energy that's driving that mentality. And so I'm stoked that we did it. It was seriously nerve wracking to have that film come out because I'm really exposing myself, but it's, I don't care really. Like if someone, what's someone going to say to me? Like, Oh, you're a pussy. Cause you, you told everyone about your weak side and all this. Like, I, don't, I don't, if that person exists, I'm like, I don't even care about that person. I know there's, I know there's someone out there and likely hundreds, if not thousands, they're going to go, Oh my God, if this dude can talk about it, I can at least go talk in private with, someone a professional and start healing myself a little bit and maybe become a better person for my family and my friends and fucking get healed and live a better life and be happier and, and have more of a joyful household you know absolutely so one last area over and over and over again positive common denominators um really showing themselves after you know 800 plus interviews when people have been able to navigate whatever their darkness looks like, whether it's actually, you know, near suicide or not quite there, one of the most healing elements is realizing that you can serve in other ways. So you were a firefighter, you know, you wore the uniform, you were clearly serving on an engine, you know, every time you got called out, you transition out, you're lost, and then you find, you know, your church, a nonprofit, whatever it is, and you realize, oh, this, I have, I've got a different costume on, but I'm doing the same thing. You find yourself testing for ski patrol. So, Firstly, talk to me about that journey in, and then was there a healing element about being of service again in that capacity? Yeah, it was it was an amazing experience. So I, I got there. I knew one person when I moved to Sun Valley, my buddy Mike Torres. And uh, so I moved to Sun Valley. And like, funny story, I told him I was going to move to Sun Valley because he had, at the time he was working for Smith Optics, selling like eyewear goggles. And he was out of the team in Virginia Beach, like with his Pelican case, showing his wares and um I saw skiing stickers on his laptop and I'm like, Oh, I'm getting out in a year and I'm going to move to Truckee. He's like, why are you going to move to Truckee? I'm like, I don't know. I just like Lake Tahoe. He's like, do you know anyone there? I was like, Nope. And he's like, why don't you come on and check Sun Valley out? You know, you can come out, you can, you can stay at my place and just come and see what you think about the area. So I did. 
the first day I was there, I was like, oh, I'm definitely moving here. So I told him like, hey, I'm moving there. He's like, yeah, yeah, cool. I call him when I'm in Ohio, literally driving. And I'm like, all right, dude, I'll be there. I'll be there in like two days. He's like, well, beware. Like, well, Sun Valley, I'm moving. He's like, wait, you're, you're moving? I'm like, yeah, all my stuff's in my truck. Like I'm, and I was towing an RV. I'd already gotten divorced. My wife stayed back and I'm driving. And he's like, well, holy shit. So I get there. <laughs> he's like, you know, to zip forward. I'm like, yeah, I want to get on ski patrol. So um, I just need to like start skiing. At the time I could snowboard like very mediocre snowboarding, but ski patrol doesn't take uh, snowboarders at most resorts just because of the mobility, the mobility factor. Um, and so I just got a season pass and started skiing and I started meeting people. And then I, they were like, what are you, what are you training for again? Like I heard you're like, trying to get on like a, you're trying to do ski. I'm like, yeah, I'm trying to get on ski patrol. And like, well, yeah, your skiing sucks. I'm like, yeah, I know. I totally suck. <laughs> and like, well, he's like, come on, man, let me. And like these people like that helped me ski, like Waylon Barrett was one of the first guys here. And he's a level four PSIA, like ski instructor. Like, he, you know, people pay me $800 a day to teach him how to ski. He's like, let's go. I'm going to help you ski. So we started out in pizza. You know, you got pizzas, French fries on the little bunny slope. These little kids skiing backwards, ripping past me. And that's those moments where you're like, well, it's just a new world. And I'm not the top dog at all here. So I'm just going to just suck that up, you know, and then just kept going and just kept doing it year after year. And after three years of that, I'd probably at that point had like maybe 330, 320 something days of skiing in, and they held tryouts. They don't hold tryouts every year. I said, well, they're holding tryouts. I got to go for it. And um, it was literally like a dude there with a clipboard, like number 45, go. And literally was like ski a mogul field, ski an easy groomer, ski the trees, get a toboggan, ski with that thing. And they're like judging you and giving you a score the whole time. And then I ended up making it. And I didn't make it because I was a good skier. I was in the lower half of the pack on skiing ability because most of the people trying out were ski town people. Like they'd grown up in a ski town. They like ski, grew up on a ski racing team. So like their form is like flawless almost, right? Um, but I think that they were, honestly, they liked my background of coming from a special operations unit, um, the way I carried myself there, um, the professionalism, and them knowing that, I knew how to work in a team. I knew how to get a job done. And I, I wasn't there to show them how great I was at doing a backflip on skis because ski patrol doesn't give a shit about that. It's, it's utilitarian four wheel drive skiing. They don't need Ferraris. They need, they, they need off-road vehicles. Right. And so I made it. And then getting on that immediately back into a team, every morning you go up, you're up before sunrise, you're making coffee you're getting a morning brief. It is a lot like being in the military, the morning brief. What's the mission for today? What are we looking out for? What's the avalanche risk? Do we got to go, you know, is it a control morning? We're going to go throw two pound penalite charges and try to, you know, mitigate the hazards inbounds. And, and we get to use, you know, like I just mentioned, we get to use explosives. You know, you go out in two man teams and you go out and, and test, you know, look at the snowpack and see if it, it's stable to open up certain runs and things like that. So you have a mission every day. And it's awesome. Like it was, it was, it was so good. It doesn't pay shit, right? You're poor as hell. Like you're not making any money, but every day when you wake up, you're, you're working with great people for the most part. I mean, there's shitty people in every organization. There's shitty people in every organization on the planet. Right. But the vast majority, awesome people, great experience. And um, I did it for three years and then it was kind of time. I had to make a choice between my business and being on ski patrol and, it was a tough choice and I had to give up ski patrol because my business required more of my time. So I was, you know, I did the adult thing and decided to like focus on business. <laughs> well, was adulting. Well, speaking of that, I think there is a lot of value as well. There's a lot of people 
wear uniform that the organizational stress is arguably sometimes more traumatic than the things that we've seen and done. Um, so when I transitioned out the, the fire service to do this full-time, and again, you talk about being poor, this startup podcast is a great way to be poor, um, but it's that burning desire, it's that service, it's trying to you know fix problems and make a difference. Um, but at the same time, so fucking liberating to not have to answer to the dickheads of the world either anymore. <laughs> so talk to me about um, 30 seconds out and, and your kind of entrepreneurial journey up to today. Yeah. So um, even before I got out of the Navy, I, I knew I, I was going to get out at 20. And and so about two years before I got out, I started, you know, going, OK, I want to I want to get something together. I got to figure out what I'm going to do next. And I knew it wasn't going to be um, training firearms, training tactics, because I didn't want to teach the tactics that I knew to people. Like I, I thought the tactics that we learned were for our unit and for our unit only. So I'm like, I can't go out on a range because all I know are our tactics. And so, and I didn't really want to do that because I'm not really a, I have guns, but I'm not, a, I'm not, a, I don't still go to the range or anything like that. Like that was never a passion of mine. Um, even though I looked at weapons in the, in the units as basically like just, just tools, you know, um, pretty much. I didn't want to contract, you know, that's, that was like the easy button, like easy moneymaker. Cause we had security clearances. There's any number of companies coming from the unit that I was with, you know, you can get on in a lot of places and, and make some decent money, but I didn't want to do that. And I'm like, I got to figure out something different. So um, I was reading the paper. It was in, we were in Virginia beach. And I'm like, there's a startup competition in Norfolk, Virginia. And so I'm like, all right, tech startups. And I'd already started to listen to the Tim Ferriss podcast. I already read four hour work week. Right. So I'm like, all right, tech stuff, apps, hacks, you know, systems, <laughs> you know, angel like, investors, <laughs> angel, right? Totally. So I'm like, I'm going to dig into this world and figure out, and I'm going to go through the, get through the weeds and see what's going on here. So I'm like, okay, cool. I can build a team. We can build apps. So I just started piecing it together. Um, got a programmer, came down, went to the startup competition. There were 72 teams. Um, and I was, it was so intimidating. I was laughing. I was like, this is just, we're just going to go for it and do the best we can. And we ended up getting second place out of the 72 teams. We kind of crushed it. And then we got invited to an accelerator, which to take those ideas, we basically launched two apps on iTunes, right? We launched uh, um, iPad apps. One with, they're both for like public speaking because my partner at the time was a public speaker. And so he's like, yeah, we need these apps. We're like, all right, we'll try your idea. If it doesn't work, we'll do some other idea later. And so we launched them and then went to the incubator and then within a year and a half, I had to pull both of them because our programmer was not a stakeholder. He was getting paid hourly to program, which is smart on his part um, because most tech startups completely funnel and do not work at all. And so um, I started running out of money. Like every time Apple does an update, it does something to your app. And so a month before they release the new build to the public, Apple will send developers to build and like, all right, here's the new iOS update. You got a month to figure your shit out and see what kind of bugs it creates in your app. So every time that happened, which is every month, I just ran out of money paying my programmer to fix these problems. So I just pulled out of that, stopped doing it. Um, and then was like, I got to figure something else out. But I learned a lot in that process, um, more so than I realized at the time. So then I moved west, uh, got to Idaho, had to get a job. So first job I got was driving a 30-ton crane on a tree crew. And, you know, running chainsaws and dragging logs and basically just chopping big trees down in, up in Idaho and did that for six months. And then I met a guy there 
um, who ran this business called the Violent Little Machine Shop. And there's a guy named Jan. And he's like, hey, why don't you come and work with me? I sell patches. I'm like, what do you mean patches? Like, you know, like patches that you wore in the military? Like, and he was actually in the military for, for a short period of time. I'm like, you're selling patches? Like, there's a patch market? <laughs> because we just wore patches because we had to, like unit identifiers, right? And every once in a while, you see a funny patch someone had, but I never really like knew there was an industry of people selling patches. So um, he brought me in and he's like, I just want to teach you a new skill if I can. And so I was there for, you know, half a year and, and it got to the point where I was like, hey, I'm ready to go start my own thing. I want to make, you know, do t-shirts and stickers. And I still do patches, even though it's like our, like our last moneymaker. We make most of our money selling designs on t-shirts. And so I took what I learned there, then built off that and then started my own brand because I wanted to work for myself and um, started making stickers with just ideas I had that from the commando world that would translate well to the civilian world. Because at the end of the day, we're, we're honestly not that unique doing commando operations is really not that different from trying to do really difficult things in any other pursuit, whether it's business or you know, becoming a firefighter or you know, doing a startup kind of thing where you're you don't own the business but you're working in it and so i just um just went for it and started learning and uh making mistakes and losing money then making money and and working for myself became addicting where i didn't want to go work for other people <laughs> so the next job i got working with someone else was i was working my business then I, I got a job on ski patrol um so then i had both those things going at once so i was super busy then and so the idea of creating 30 seconds out the name is actually was a placeholder until i found a better name and i was with jan one day up in his office and he's like you gotta think of a name for your business man because he, he wanted to you know help me get a business going i'm like all right we'll just call it 30 seconds out for now and so because i can't think of anything cool and then people started telling me immediately they liked it right i, created, I did a little shopify website and like two stickers on there and then i'm like all right well i'll just keep it until people tell me they hate it and like and that never happened so i just kept the name and then just kept growing it and just creating ideas and putting those ideas on things and really like what we're selling is we're not selling apparel and stickers we're selling we're selling an idea and we put it on things i could put it on anything i could put it on like an umbrella <laughs> you know what i mean like you just put put these concepts on anything and there's just ways of thinking about dealing with tough situations like really really tough situations where like lives are at stake kind of thing um and it's just kept growing and building and it's stressful and it's also super rewarding all at the same time and we're still doing it and we just opened our first brick and mortar retail shop here in Montrose and been in business nine years now and, and I have a business coach I just got two months ago so I actually have like someone that knows about business helping me which is awesome and it's actually not them it's a group it's like a group and different coaches will come in I have a primary coach but different coaches will come in that have expertise that'll help me through things that are obvious to them that are very unobvious to us because working you know like if you're in a business just like being in a mental health situation, you don't see what you don't, you can't see it from the outside because you're in it. And so when you're in it, we're always, we can only see like a percentage of what's going on. And a lot of times it takes someone on the outside to go, Hey, tap you on the shoulder. Like, Hey, I noticed you've been a real stressed out the past year. Let's, let's chat. If you get a chance, you know, maybe, maybe we can dig into that and kind of alleviate, make you a happier person a little bit. And the same thing in business. Like I can see the problems here. Like, let me, can I help you? Yeah. As long as you're willing to let people help you, right? And you can go a long way, I think. Yeah. I wrote a book three years ago, and one thing that I got from all my friends that I asked, you know, who'd written books or, you know, were, were very well versed in, in you know, just the, the art world, I guess you could say, it was the same exact thing. 
get yourself an editor. Do not edit your book yourself. And you write this book, and you're like, well, I've done it, you know, five times now. This this seems to be good. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. And then you send it to an editor, and it comes back covered in red, and you're like, ah, oh, okay, okay, now now I see. Because again, that objective set of eyes, as long as it's the right set of eyes, you know. And but that takes humility, I think, and that's the hard thing in an organization, you know, uh, professions where we were the ones mitigating the problems. We were the problem solvers. We were the fixers. And now you're like, actually, I need to ask someone else because they're the true expert in this field. So, um, yeah, I mean, I can I can see that. I haven't got a business mentor because I don't really, I hate the business side of what I do. I mean, if, as long as someone sponsors the show, then I'm good. I can focus on these kind of conversations. But definitely from the creative side with the book, I asked everyone because, I mean, what the hell do I know about writing a book? I, <laughs> I uh, kick in doors and pull people out of fires. Uh, it's, it? it's called One More Light. Uh Life, death, and humanity through the eyes of a firefighter. One more life. Uh, yeah, one more life. But it was really, it was just twelve. I think it's twelve chapters. I can't remember now. Fourteen. But anyway, it was. It wasn't a biography. It was stories from my career, so I could illustrate a wellness concept, whether it was mental health, you know, sleep deprivation, obesity, all these things. So that was the point. So it was lived experience. So I knew what I was writing. But as far as turning it into a book that was engaging. The humility side was let me ask lots of people and let them, you know, tear it apart. And I'll take someone's advice. I'll disregard that person's advice, and then eventually you've got this thing. Yeah, and taking advice, you got to be careful with it too, because sometimes you can get bad advice from very well-meaning people. You have to know yourself, you know, and so um, being able to filter through advice. But in the when you're when you're vulnerable and you're just coming out of it. Like I would like listen to just any advice. I would be like, okay, what should I do? Like, okay, um, stop listening to Slayer and Pantera 12 hours a day and drinking. Okay, that's, I could see how that could probably lead me to become aggressive, right? And that's what I was doing. Like heavy metal was my thing and drinking, right? And so I actually had to tone it down. I still love heavy metal, but it, it doesn't consume my ears all day long. Right? I can't <laughs> listen to Rage Against the Machine while I'm driving because the likelihood of me getting angry behind the wheel increases exponentially. Totally. <laughs> well, totally. totally. well then um, talk to me about the the concept too, because I know we chatted a few weeks ago now. Um there's ironically there is a store that just opened in the mall here in Ca in Ocala that is all military t shirts, so Grand Style and, and all those other ones. But I know your philosophy is slightly different, and I'm not saying that those T-shirts are on this this category. But there's definitely a tactical, you know, demographic that love those kind of shirts. But I know you've got a little bit more of a twist on on your line. Yeah, I um, so my my am I a patriot? Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, I was willing to die for this country hundreds and hundreds of times for sure on missions, and um, I feel. There's different ways to view what patriotism means. And to me, it's changed through the years, right? When we're in the war, you're very focused on getting the bad guys, and that is the main focus of you. And so, therefore, you think that is the main focus of the United States. There's actually a lot more problems going on that the U.S. is dealing with than um, a conflict or a war. And, you know, for a lot of years, it was definitely the main thing happening, but there's also a lot of other things, um, you know, happen happening that, um, require our attention. And a lot of times those, 
the the thought that we are always right and America does no wrong. And um, if you say that we, if you try to say there's a chink in our armor anywhere, you're a traitor and you should leave the country. There's a lot of people here that think like that. Um, and it's really unfortunate. And the people that I've met, for the most part, that think like that haven't seen a shot fired nigger in their life. It's generally the people that didn't go and do the heavy shit for a fucking decade of seeing what war is. What do we do there? What are they doing to us there? And so it, if I have a sobering view of U.S. foreign policy, and I love this country, I don't think the best way to demonstrate what America really means at its core is to shove a flag down someone's throat and tell them if they don't say the things say the things just like I want you to say them and demonstrate patriotism the way I view it, then you are um, you should basically die or be kicked out. And there's obviously tons of polarization right now. And I think that is absolutely not the way that we should view this country. So my philosophy with creating designs is subtle patriotism. I don't need to put a, I don't need two flags on every shirt. Right to to let you know that I love this country and I and I fought for it and I'm willing to die for it and I I die for it again I'd go fight again if if, if that's what it took, um, but I also value things from other countries. I have friends in the UK that are spec ops guys from the UK and they love the US and I love the UK. We're both you know we, we think our sides are kind of like a little better and we point fingers at each other a little bit like you guys got problems over there you you got problems too, but I think there's also value in. And leaving room for other people to see the the freedom of the United States and what freedom really, really means. And we're getting to the point now where we're getting less freedom because we're siloed, right, in, in, in kind of two camps. And we like to, like I mentioned before, we like to they and them. We like to clump people because it's easier for our little our little bonobo brains to think of people in groups. Because if I try to think of, you know, a hundred million people, that's way too many individual thoughts. It's either it's easier just to go, oh, these people are all blue. Those people are all red. And then we can hate them. Okay, boom, problem solved. We hate all them. They're traitors. Next, right? It's psychologically, it's a simple, it's simple for us to do that. And it's um, it's it's honestly, it's fucking lazy. It's lazy thinking. And so I look at more of what what would I want to demonstrate to someone thinking about coming to the United States? What is this place like if this is a black person from Africa that has nothing and they're coming here because they want to make something, they want to send money home, and they want to possibly bring their families over here to live a better life because the exact situation they're in is not bad. Like how intimidated is that person going to be here? You know, you got dipshit fucking neo-Nazis. And it's all over the news, you know, racism and all this bullshit. And the vast majority of those people didn't serve a fucking day because they're on meth and they're idiots. You, know, you like, I, I, I've met some of them and they are fucking idiots, like for real. And so um, there's a, there's a, there's a different way we express our patriotism and things we value. And so I focus on the positive, get things done at, attitude and ideas that I, experienced in 20 years in the military and going to combat for a long time. And when I see 
the just the heavy duty flags flying and metal fingers and the fuck you attitude if you don't like vote for Trump and if you don't you know think like we do and you don't look like we do and you don't go to the same church that we do and you don't believe ethically like we do so what does that start to sound like it doesn't sound like a fucking a republic or a democratic a democratic process to me you know what it sounds like right this is this is this is the this sounds like the formation of the armies that we this country has fought you know so, I'm pretty, I like feel very strong that like, I'm a, I'm in a very strong position. Like I love this country and I want to, I'd like to demonstrate to people like America isn't all the fucking crazy shit you see on TV. America is an idea and it's in process and there's no point where we're going to arrive. We have to protect what we have here, but we should also, when we see things that are, we should obviously make some changes and tweaks. Let's do that. For example, hey, maybe we should let women do activities like back in the 50s and 60s, right? Women should be allowed to enter races now. What do you guys think? If you think about the Taliban's crazy or, or like in Saudi Arabia when they wouldn't let women drive cars, that was us fucking 50, 60 years ago. Stringing black people I mean, from trees in the South. Yeah. I mean, like, how far away removed do you think we are from the Taliban? Like some ideological religious groups here. Not that fucking far at all. Like scarily close. And so I think there's a, there's, there'll never be an answer to it, but I want to like the, the message that I put out there, like, like personally and with our brand to be, we're from the United States and we believe in freedom and here's kind of where we're at. And if you have some different ideas, I'm willing to listen to them. And if your ideas are totally different than mine, I'm not going to freak out because I, I feel very grounded in my ideas and what I believe. But if you present a very good breakdown scientifically of why I should think something differently, I'm going to, I'm going to entertain it and I'm going to dig into it. And I'm certainly not going to take and do any action based off of a single source. Right. So you have these people that went to a single source QAnon, that's a single source. And then they raided the January 6th Capitol based off of a single source. You're like, how fucking stupid do you got to be? Honestly, like, come on a single source and you're going to go, yeah. And you're just going to keep feeding your brain information from one source and go, yep, I think we should go raid the U S Capitol state. That's a great idea. <laughs> you know what I mean? I do. It's so stupid. And I think those dudes sitting in prison now are just, they got to be just going, why was I such an idiot? Why didn't I look into this more, put more, put more intellect into what I'm about to do and really vet this thing that I'm really believing strongly. Mm -hmm. I don't even um, like Buffalo helmets. <laughs> you know totally. so i mean this this comes up over and over and over again and it's you know through so many different lenses people on here are, are super diverse as far as their background their occupation um but it's the same thing over and over again these these extreme whatever they are 10 5 percent seem to get so much fucking airtime and i've asked you know a lot of people that are that are well versed in history like why why is it that we do not learn from history and over and over and over again the extremists who mathematically are a very small number compared to the rest of the country manage to dupe us and i think i've, I've repeated this a lot of times i think it's just a great analogy one of my guests said imagine you're in medieval england and you look down the village and the villagers because you've told them stuff are arguing with each other he said where are they not looking at the castle where you're fucking sitting and this is it, is that 
again, both sides this last six years have deliberately divided this country. And so a real patriot takes a step back, goes, I love so much about this country, but you know what? Our education's a bit shit. And have you seen how many people are overweight? And it seems like we've got a fentanyl problem here. Let's all put to, you know, band together and start fixing it. Because a patriot doesn't, you know, a real patriot stays there and brings out problems and said, let's change this. You know, uh, uh, they say nationalism is when you just fly flags and if, the, you know, no one agrees with everything you say, then, you know, what are you going to do? Originally, originally you, you hate them on the keyboard and there's one day does that involve trains and giant ovens? I mean, who knows? So this is the, the conversation. And to also add weight to that, the number of people I've had that have traversed a nation, whether it's the UK, whether it's the US, whether it's the world, and they're like, I was blown away by how much kindness and compassion I was met with on my run, my motorcycle ride, whatever it is for this particular event. That is America. The middle 80 plus percent are really fucking good people, but the extreme 10 on each side get all the fucking yap yap. And another one of my, my guests was like, think of it also this way. We are the poster child. We are the advert for democracy. And from the outside looking in, and I know this because my British friends and family are like, what the fuck is going on? I'm like, this isn't what's actually happening, you know? So we have to, as a collective, band together and just fucking stop these fucking idiots from having so much airtime and actually reclaim our country and start fixing things and make it great again. Just like that Jeff Daniels speech from Newsroom, you know, we're not the greatest country in the world. And to me, it's not a competition, but... If we all work together, we will absolutely elevate it and get it up to where it needs to be again. And I think, it, honestly, a lot of that is marketing because um, conflict sells, right? And sells ad space. And so if, if if you put a friendly story on, that's a good, you know, feel good story. And you only get, you know, 2 million viewers and you put on a crazy story about a protest and a, somebody shot somebody and there was the KKK. K was there, you know, you get 6 million views and you charge more for your ads. And so you're like, well, we kind of go, you know, you just look at the, the margins are better if we show the, the crazy shit. And then that's what the world sees is like, oh, it looks like America's, but literally it's, it's a, it's a dumpster fire. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And it's not. Yeah. I mean, um, the fact that that fucking mugshot was all over my Instagram wall a few days ago, I'm like, I thought we got rid of this. Why are they? Why are we paying attention? This is old, you know, this ancient history now. And you're surprised that a politician is corrupt. That in itself is an entire conversation. Left and right, <laughs> the system is broken. You keep letting shitbags into the top. We need to talk about that too. Anyway, we could go down that rabbit hole for a long time, but I agree with you completely. You know, patriotism is is a a pride that we've earned, a community that bands together. You know, and I think that you know your your profession, my profession, you know, we we do literally risk our lives. So I think that these voices are important for the people that have truly served that see it. Like, you know, there's so much good. Don't let them tell you there's not. There are some evil fuckers in this world, but most people are phenomenal and we have to, you know, remind them of that and and lift them up rather than just keep dividing and scaring them over and over again. I have a, I have a challenge for people and um, I bring it up to, to friends and people I know. And the challenge is this. If you if you don't have a friend in your five to ten person circle that you see on a regular basis that you're around that is on the basically the opposite side politically as you are, 
you are taking the easy way out and you're coasting because you know you're not going to get challenged mentally by that by anybody so and it is more comfortable to be around friends and you all agree and you all think the same thing but we need to have the the courage to bring someone else in and be like hey this is my buddy jeff he doesn't think like we do he's totally different he's going to sit here and crack a cold one with us and tell us what you think about this subject jeff and at the end here's the here's the challenge they can say things you don't agree with and you can't storm out emotionally. You can't come unglued emotionally. You have to sit there, listen to what they say, and intelligently respond and be friends with them again the next day. And maybe you convince them of some of your ideas. And maybe you know, their ideas will rub off on you. And that's very likely because there isn't one person on the planet that is 100% right. I think I'm 100% right, but realistically, I'm probably like 60 to 70% right. Yeah, my wife knows I'm not 100% right. She reminds me all the time. <laughs> so it, I, I think at the grassroots level, I don't think it's like a government thing that's going to happen. It's a challenge that I like, to, I like to issue, and I have it myself. I have friends that think completely different than me politically, and I love them. And I, and I, and I respect them because they'll sit there and tell me what they think. And they know I don't agree, you know, and we're still friends and we stay friends. And at the end of it, we're like, all right, enough fucking politics and shit, news talk shit. What, what do you want to do? Let's go climbing. Let's go skiing or something. So you can be friends and disagree politically and let, let it be a process. Let the convincing them or them convincing you take its course and use logic and reason and listen and make your point. If you get emotional and you have to storm out every time, you're not ready to handle those conversations. You're a, you're a, like a, you're an infant. You need to grow, right? And that's really true. Like you're you're a child that needs to grow and understand the world and be more mentally durable and be able to hear ideas that fly in your face and piss you off a little bit and stay calm and go, huh? Here's why I think that that idea doesn't work for me or doesn't work for the world. Why why, why I think you're wrong? And so that's a challenge. I like. Oh, that's a good challenge. And I think we start doing that, right? That's, I think we'll start, the glue will start to bond us. We're going to start to get more glue between each other from the thems and the days. Because we, them and they, we, all, we, we, we clump each other, you know. And the clumps will start to come together a little bit better. And then things will get better in the country, you know. Out of 815, 16 people so far, you know, there are some people that lean very hard on each side. None of them are like extremists, but they, you know, they're pretty hard leaning. And what I found just from from this position from interviewing is if you start in the middle, like, you know, you want to see your kids grow up, you want to feed them, you want to clothe them, you want to make sure they're taught that pretty much everyone's going to agree. And then you just kind of expand out a little bit and you dip your toes on each side and you're like, huh, yeah, I'm not sure about that. And then like you say, you go back and forth and someone's like, you know what, I'm going to agree to disagree on this. And they're like, yeah, sweet. Okay. And then you move on to something else. And I think that's when you realize how many commonalities we've got. And the differences really are a very small part of most of us. You know, I, I'm not sure about abortion or whatever it is. Okay, but, you know, that particular topic isn't your entire world, your entire existence. It might come up, you know, if your daughter gets pregnant and now all of a sudden it's a very real thing. But the rest of the time, you know, focus on all the things that are that you're sharing and then explore those extremes. And that's what I found from this. You know, when someone goes that far and be like, okay, we didn't get anywhere there and that is okay. Let's go back to the middle and let's carry on talking about some other stuff. 
Yeah. Yeah, that needs to happen. And I think it actually is happening because, you know, talking to people, people are doing that. And and you hear mo- you hear a lot, not on the news so much, but you hear a lot from people that we have more in common than, you know, we have differences. You've heard that so many times over the past few years as things have gotten really crazy. And we really do, but you just don't hear about it. So instead of us having the view of like, hey, we need the news to, to stop making us like this, we just need to stop fucking being like this. Absolutely. The news is going to do what what sells ad space. They're going to they're going to they're following the margins. Like they're not going to start producing content because it's the right thing to do. Every once in a while, sure, but at the end of the day, they have investors and they got to they got to put numbers up, right? It's up to us to do it. Like we have to do it, and you got to start like real small, like the Gandhi model, right? Just start with yourself, kind of thing. And it's really that's that's the way it's going to happen. Yeah, for real. Hundred um, percent. Well, I want to throw some closing questions at you quickly if you've got time before we wrap up. Brilliant. All right. Well, then the first one I love to ask, is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Yeah. um, Some of them are more highbrow than others, but I try to read like, you know, a dozen books a year, roughly. And I mostly do, um, I mostly do uh, audio books when I'm driving. I mean, just because that for me, it, I, I feel like I absorbed the information really well on that. Um, one book is Principles by Ray Dalio. And so um, Ray Dalio is an you know, investment banker, started um, BlackRock Capital, one of the most successful firms in the history of man. And he breaks down. It's not a book about finance. It's a book about the principles that got him to that level and how as he went through life and made mistakes, he learned and would write mistakes down in solutions. And so he started building this archive of how to not keep messing up in the future so that the trajectory was constant improvement instead of improvement with a lot of reinventing the wheel and then some improvement and reinventing the wheel. So it was just mostly improvement, which is how it skyrocketed and became um, extremely successful. Um, another book here, I'm going to look at my uh, ones I've read recently. I'm working on one right now. I'm going to look at my list here and tell you what I'm looking here. So, uh, Crucial Conversations by Joseph Grenning. How to talk to people. That one I love. Um, And I'm going through it. In the books, I usually, I try to listen to them twice because um, my mind wanders a lot and I've always been like kind of hyper and so i'll like i'll zone out and i'll come back i'm like okay i missed that section but i'll get it on the, i'll get it on the next lap um coming through um the other one is um for business uh the e-myth revisited um by michael gerber um really really good and that basically breaks down just basically why business is crushing you and how to get out of it if you started a business already, or if you read it and you go into business, how to avoid even being crushed. Um, kind of thing. And there's so many like business books out there. Um, I'm trying to think of another one. So the four hour work week was what that would definitely was one of the first, the first books I read right before I got out trying to figure out what my life would look like. And I tried some of the things in it and then ended up not doing those, but the amount of, the amount of like using technology in the way, um, like Tim in there talks about thinking about making money, 
really changed how I was approaching things. Cause I used to think like I hit the hammer 20 times and then I get $20 for an hour of work. And then I hit the hammer some more and then they give me some more money. You know what I mean? Into let's create systems and repeatable processes and outsource things and have other people do things that are repeatable that we don't need to be doing. So we can focus on other things. And, and I was like, Oh, okay, this is how I need to really be um, thinking about this. Um, there's another one really there's so many good ones. Like I, I'm deleting, I delete so many from my uh, um, audiobook thing. I, li I listen to a lot of climbing books too. Cause I, I need two, two kind of different books, um, books that help me with business and the, like the technical, technical aspects of, in the, like the, the doing life better kind of books. And then the books where I don't have to like think about anything other than these guys having a gnarly time climbing in Alaska and listening to their stories at night. Right. So at night I try to listen to like less, like things that are going to stress me out, like business type of books that just get my gears turning and I got to do this, I got to do that. And more like kind of take it easy. The other thing is uh, probably, probably my favorite author is um, Harari, Yuval Harari, who wrote um, um, Sapiens and Homo Deus and Sapiens, one of my favorite books of all time. And it basically just describes mankind. If you're, if you're religious, it's, you're not going to like it. Um, but it's, um, it's a, a very hard, I would say, very excellent look at where we came from and why we are the way we are and why we believe what we believe. For example, what is an LLC, a business? Like, where is that? Is that a, like, is this the LLC, like this thing I'm holding in my hand? Or is it actually just an idea and someone wrote about it on paper? That's all it is. It's an idea. So we like our monetary system, we believe in it. It's an idea. Yes, I have a dollar in my hand, but the whole system works because we believe it works. And so like an author like Harari, like gives you a new way to think about like, oh, this is, that's a very good explanation of why we behave like we do and why we're still very sort of tribal minded and why we group up and make enemies over here because our tribe needs to be safe and they're a threat over there. So if they attack us, we should attack them. Maybe we should attack them first because that way they don't get the initiative and get us right. Politically, that's what we're doing, right? We're, we're, we're we have little enemies that we're fighting literally, you know, um, but yeah, and there's, there's, there, I would say for for people, people have to like when I was when I was in high school, I didn't read anything they told me to read. I hated reading because I didn't want to read the books they were telling me to read. I was reading the books about like you know seals and green berets and marine recon in Vietnam. I was reading those books. They'd be like, and then they'd be like, okay, grapes of wrath. Um, where are we at with that, Sean? I'm like, I I lost my book. I'm not sure what happened to it. I mean, those are classics, but I didn't want to read them, and I wasn't interested, and so I didn't. Um, so I think to get someone to read, just to get started reading, just read something you want to read. Don't listen to other people. What do you want to read? That's not it's fiction. Just start reading. And then you're going to read that and you're going to get ideas and you're going to get curious. And if you can develop curiosity, that I think is the beginning of a completely better life for you. If you become a curious person, like I'm going to admit, I don't know about these things and I'm going to read about them and try to learn more about those things. I think I know about those things, but do I really know about those things or am I just regurgitating what I heard on the news last night? You know? Um, and so becoming a curious person is extremely important. And you can see people that are not curious people. They're very, nope, this is the way it is. And that's great. If you're in like a system at work that like, no, but there are processes here and this is how we do it. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about being set in your ways and not being curious. The moment in life you lose your curiosity, I think you start dying. You start dying mentally. You start losing touch with the people around you. Um, your kids who are in a totally different generation than you are, 
Now you're the old cranky old man that's complaining about why things aren't the way they used to be. And I do not want to be that person. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> I just don't want to be that guy. I want to, I want to learn new things and there'll be things I learned that are new that I don't agree with. And I'll just be like, okay, I just don't agree with those, but I, I don't want to become the old crotchety veteran dude, even though that's a very catchy hat and shirt for some companies like old grumpy old vet guy. I don't want to be that fucking person. I want to be a mountain guide and I want to be an asset to my grandkids. And I want them to keep up with me in the mountains. Like, I, you know what I mean? I, I, I want to be telling them about new ideas and concepts that they should know about that were written this year. They should be like, Oh, maybe I shouldn't learn about that. Like you want to be, you want to be a leader because if, if, if you get set in your ways, you lose curiosity and you sit there and you plant your flag and sit on the couch and pop, pop a bottle and say, Nope, this is the way it is that I did my time. And now I'm just going to believe what, and it stops right fucking here. You're not leading anymore. Now your family is sort of looking at you probably like, kind of like, man, I, I love grandpa. I love dad, but I love uncle so-and-so, but he's just fucking mean. and He's not interesting. And he, he doesn't bring anything new to the table. He's not really an asset other than complaining about politics. And he watches the news all day. The fuck is that? what the fuck are you teaching where you are you teaching kids don't do that like you're setting an example of how not to be in my mind right there yeah don't don't become like that stay curious have goals be a leader lead even if you're fucking 80 70 years old lead be a leader like challenge their minds even if they're old beliefs challenge them with them but also let them challenge you with their new beliefs and like hey here's, here's you know your 15 year old that's out there that's you don't understand listen to them why do you think that what like ask them and, and get to know why they think what they think. It doesn't mean there's no threat. They're gonna you're gonna get absorbed, right? Like people that are they're homophobic. They don't want to talk to gay people because maybe they're worried that they'll somehow the gay is gonna get on them. You know what I mean? Like, you know what I mean? like it's like it's almost like an insecurity. You're like you should fully be talking to people and like communicating with them. You don't have to agree with them, but learn. Be curious. Hundred percent. Well, what about movies and or documentaries that you love? shit oh man um i kind of i've got to the point where um i think in the military we watched all the movies on deployment that's why you hear military people and i'm sure it's the same at the firehouse and this you know is quoting movies right and so like uh, yeah i mean still to this day if i had to like have on my head headstone favorite movie saving private ryan i just can't and that, that 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 that's also indicative of what's wrong with the world because you look if you look on Rotten Tomatoes, I think Saving Private Ryan only has a ninety six or a ninety seven percent approval rating. Who the fuck are the three to four percenters that don't like Saving Private Ryan? <laughs> like those people are out there. How is that possible? Those to me are the same people that don't return the cart at the grocery store in the parking lot. They just let it coast in to the vehicle down the hill. I'm going to shout that next time I see someone do that. Oh, what? Do you fucking hate Saving Private Ryan too, <laughs> asshole? <laughs> <laughs> right? um, I watch a, um, I, I watch a lot of, of uh, like TEDx talks. Um, not because like I'm like, oh, I want to tell people that I watched a TEDx or a TED you know talk yesterday. That's at all. I want to watch it because once you start being curious – it's so humbling. You realize like, you don't know a lot. Like, I'm like, holy shit. Like I thought I was like really knowledgeable because we were really good at doing commando stuff. And that's what we did all the time. And we focused on it and we became pros at it. We did it. And then you step out of that and you're like, huh, actually people don't really give a shit about that. Really. I mean, they, they think it's cool. It's like, oh, you're a commando at a cocktail party. Cheers. Cool. Like the commando guys here. That's great. Um, but 
learning things you don't know and being curious and just keep challenging your brain and your beliefs is I think super critical. So watch a lot of like Ted talks, watch a lot of YouTube videos and just things I'm curious about. I'll just throw it on there. Like what's this thing about? Um, I watched some entertaining shows like, you know, through the pandemic, I think we all kind of had to watch a lot of movies and, and shows. So like my wife and I, we, we did all the Sopranos and that was awesome, you know, and uh, we still have shows that we'll watch there. It's our nighttime kind of thing. We watch like shows that don't really have to get you to think a whole lot about your life and make you sort of give you anxiety about things you should be doing. Um, we kind of watch like things that are like kind of easy watching. My wife, what wife, Wife likes horror movies. I can't stand horror movies. They freak me out. I won't watch them. Little girl coming out of a TV. Nope, I'm right. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Do you? Let me ask you this. I mean, you've you've been involved in a lot more violence than most firefighters have, but obviously we see grotesque things. You know, when people are having their worst day. I was into horror movies when I was in my almost like late teens. Like I watched them all the time. Became a firefighter. Came out the other end, or, or during it, I'm like, I can't watch it because. I think it's just simply like you shift now to like, wait a second. So you're being entertained by watching people being bludgeoned to death. When you've seen people being bludgeoned to death or, you know, the results of all of a sudden it completely reframes it. And it actually kind of sickens me that this is even an entertainment. And then you talk about psychology. Where the fuck did that come from? You know, I've had a, a hell of a day in the office. Let me sit down and watch a cabin full of, you know, college kids get murdered by a dude with a chainsaw. Right. Yeah, I think... um I never liked horror movies my whole life, and it, it, I'm sure there's a connection there between, um, you know, things that were done to me when I was a kid and having complete clarity on what it's like to be a completely helpless person to be at the hands of somebody else doing things to you. I, like, I don't wish that on people. There are certain people I would wish it on, and those are the people that are doing it. I would wish that would happen to them, right? Even though that's an unhealthy thought. And I'm trying, I'm working on that, right? Namaste. I'm working on that. Um, But if you've seen those things, I don't see where the the entertainment value is. And I honestly don't think I know of a lot of people that have been in, you know, heavy combat or seen really fucking bad shit that are like, watched a lot of horror movies. I don't think so. We're mostly watching like cowboy movies and oddly war movies like <laughs> saving by ryan and black hog down and you know like all these other reading war books and stuff which i i don't so much anymore i i um i i i trend towards trying to trying to um curate what i what i put into my eyeballs and what's going into my head because i got goals and i i watch things that i think were going to help me get to my goal and how to do things like technical systems with climbing and or watching this person that's overcome something really difficult and what their psychology was like. Like I read uh, David Goggins first book and I've never met David. Um, but I loved his first book. Like in the stuff he went through with his dad and the bowling alley as a kid is gnarly, man, like unbelievable. And I could, I could relate to him on a level, you know? And I, and I was like, man, I, 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 I know what, I know what that feels like. The growing up with insecurity and you don't know what's going to happen. And you just don't have stability in your life and bad fucking things are happening to you and, and the people you love and you're, watch your mom things happen to your mother and um yeah and so there's uh there's no reason to to like that i don't feel bad that i don't like it you know what i mean but if people like it i think it's like harmless i i think i don't know um, i'm just not into it I don't, it's, I, it freaks me it doesn't make me feel good it, it gives me a really sick feeling in my stomach like i don't want to watch people get carved up and shit like that you know why yeah yeah i'm exactly the same 
Before we get to where we can find you online and where we, people can find 30 Seconds Out, um, what do you do to decompress? Uh, climb, run, ski. Um, my go-to is always physical activity to de-stress, right? Because we can decrease our cortisol levels. So doing, doing not overdoing it, but doing good exercise regularly is going to decrease your cortisol right? It's, it's going to bring your body a little bit more into a balance where it's healthier, a little bit more towards the homeostasis. We're, we're like our ideal state, you know what I'm saying? Um, physical activity. The easiest thing for me is just going on trail runs. Cause I live in, you know, I live in Uray, Colorado at 7,700 feet and there's trails all over the place. Like, or, and so, and then also picking a decompress by having short-term goals. I know this is like so cliche. You got to have short-term goals and long-term goals, but I've actually found myself doing that little short-term goals that help me get to the longer term goal. Um, and so like just last Saturday, I ran my first, I ran the farthest I've ever ran in my life on Saturday, 40 miles, four, uh, 14,000 feet of vertical gain, the Telluride mountain. Run. And I'd been training for that for, you know, eight months. And I had it coming up and I even had races I did before that. So that keeps me engaged on this whole path. So I'm like decompressing every day after stressful things. Cause I'm like, well, what am I going to do? Well, shit, you got that race coming up that you committed to, you better do it or else you're going to not make it. Right. And so having those goals, it, it, those short-term goals and long-term goals inform the activity that day that I think is the best thing for me to do. So, and if I don't have a goal, I'm just going to go, oh, well, I guess I can just do whatever feels the simplest. Grab, crack, crack a beer, open a bottle, um, just lay around like and just sort of figure out what I'm going to do next week or whatever. I, that's not a good, healthy place for me. It's like, you know, idle minds. And I'm one of those idle minds. I, I can't sit idly. Probably just listening to me talk, you you realize that I'm like, you know, I've, I'm like high energy all the time. And it's just it's just my DNA. It's just the way I am. And so physical activity for sure. Um, yeah. And, uh, and I think that's the best, honestly, like if, if they were to like wave a wand and say, what's the best thing to heal veterans and to help, you know, first responders that've been through trauma, it's physical activity, go outside, go running. You got to get, it literally, it makes such a big difference. Um, you know, yeah, take your, take your pills, do what they say with that. Listen to the doctors, you know, to an extent. Um, but you gotta, you gotta take care of yourself. Physical activity is is the way I'm convinced. Absolutely, it's definitely a common dominant. And you said outside as well. I mean, that's the thing. If you're amongst nature, you got you know vitamin D from the sunshine. You're breathing fresh air. Maybe you're doing it with a few other people. So now you got that camaraderie as well. You know, it's all the healing element, which ironically was everything people were told not to do during COVID. But that's another conversation for another time. <laughs> all right, but then. The very last thing then, I'm sure people are kind of, you know, really blown away by a lot of the elements of this conversation. Where are the best places to find you online and on social media? And then also 30 seconds out. Um, yeah, so I, I like my personal Instagram is uh, evan30sec, evan30sec. Um, and it's basically just most of that is just like I post up like mountain guiding stuff that I'm doing. And as I'm working my way from the bottom of the mountain guiding world which is where i'm at now up and then our website is 30 secondsout.com and it's just all letters the word 30 the word seconds the word out and that's our that's our apparel brand and um yeah that's where i can be found and and if if somebody if you get on there if you let's say you go on the site and you do watch it it's a 15 minute documentary um called the dark edge 
don't watch it around kids. I cuss in it a lot. There's real, there's some gnarly topics covered in that. So it's a, it's an adults only rated R for sure. Um, and if you have questions about that, or if you think you want to have a conversation with me, just email me and it's Evan, E-V-A-N at 30secondsout.com. And it's just the word 30, the word seconds, the word out. There's no numbers in it, 30secondsout.com. And um, yeah, just hit me up. I've been hit up by lots of people ever since then. And um, that's how you can get a hold of me. And I will respond. If you email me there, I'll definitely respond. Well, Sean, I want to say thank you. We've been chatting for two and a half hours now. Um, gone all over the place. Yes, it's crazy, isn't it? Time flies when you're when you're engaged. But, yeah. you know, I talk about this all the time, and I think it's important to underline every time. We have a crisis of the facade of masculinity. And what I mean by that is the John Wayne Rambo bullshit that a lot of us were raised, and that's what a man is. And so now I have this smorgasbord of high performers, warriors in all kinds of international spaces. And when they are vulnerable, which they have so many times, it debunks that myth of, well, I'm too tough to, you know, deal with mental health or whatever. So that courageous vulnerability, excuse me, vulnerability that you've, you know, brought to this conversation, as well as all obviously all the all the fun stuff we talked about and the ski patrol and the mountaineering is so, so important. And obviously your video has hit home and I know this conversation will as well. So I want to thank you so much, not only for two and a half hours of amazing conversation, but being what a real man is, which is a warrior, but also having the vulnerability and compassion and empathy to actually talk about these things. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. This was a really fun conversation. And I'm, it's awesome to be able to talk about all these things all in one two and a half hour period and, and you know, diving deep on things. It, it feels good. And I feel like we're putting good information out there. Like your people listen to this, people are going to get value, I think, from pieces of this conversation. So I'm stoked you brought me on. Thank you.